Hello, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today for VR Download. Each week, we meet here in the Upload VR studios to discuss the next generation of personal computing. My name is Ian Hamilton. I'm in the United States, joined by David Heaney in Northern Ireland. VR brings us together into this broadcast studio where we've got cameras, a TV, and tablets for notes and comments. We syndicate VR Download out to all podcast platforms and encourage our audience to become Upload VR members. This week, we're sponsored by Veil VR, which released recently in early access on Steam. That's a first-person shooter with immersive physics, full-body animations, and skins. You can climb, vault, ride zip lines, and defy gravity on jump pads to achieve victory in this 5v5 competitive shooter. Hello, Skiva and Guy Godin, the creator of Virtual Desktop, in our comments today for our live show. David, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so again, we really, really have a lot to talk about because obviously we did miss an episode just before the change of year. And then this Consumer Electronics Show had a lot of VR showings and Ian and Kyle were there to get a lot of those products hands-on. So we're going to first talk about HP Reverb G2 discounts seemingly showing up in the Steam hardware survey. Big screen adding support for Disney Plus and Amazon Prime co-watching. Meta cutting Quest 1 social features and ending updates this year. Roblox reportedly coming to Quest later this year, potentially. Intel's flagship laptop Wi-Fi chip being able to directly connect to Quest headsets. Meta increasing Quest 2's GPU performance via a software update. Yes, really. The report detailing the apparent specs and features of Apple's upcoming headset. Links are one ramping up production as the first headsets finally ship. The ultra-high-end XTAL 3, which I really liked at last year's CES, getting a wireless option later this year. Shiftall's announcement that the ultra-compact X PC headset should ship this year for $1,700. Shiftall's Flip VR controller, which frees up your hands when you need them by flipping it around 180 degrees. Ian's hands-on experiences with Pimax Portal. And finally, Vive XR Elite, which if you've been living under a virtual <laughs> rock for a week, is HTC's Quest Pro competitor shipping next month for $1,100. Our commenters are saying that this episode will be four days long. Ben, yes, I am very concerned about that. I was just joking with Heaney that we can't go too much more over two hours and we think it's unlikely that the batteries will last that long on our headsets. So maybe we just don't plug them in this week and let them die at the two-hour mark if we even get there. CES was just last week. I did some crazy travel to get out there and back to Vegas. Saw a lot of things. I missed a couple of the big ones, but I've already got my sort of Pimax impressions up on the site and cannot wait to talk about that near the end of our show. I'm also working on my HTC Vive impressions, and it was a big deal to kind of go back to CES after all this time, but we'll work up to that, and it was great meeting all of the people that I saw in Las Vegas. Windows MR was the fastest-growing headset on Steam in December. That was boosted by holiday discounts on the Reverb G2, do we want to talk about that real quick, Heaney, go through these as fast as we can as we build towards the bigger ones? Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say about this is that it does show that if the price is right, if the price is affordable, there is still an appetite for a tethered 
native PC headset that doesn't have standalone capability. Obviously, what we've been talking about on this show for years now, as we've been noticing in these Steam hardware survey trends, is that standalone headsets are what people want. People want to be able to pay a couple of hundred dollars to have a headset that they can use completely independently on its own wirelessly or connected to their PC, either via cable. But if you do have a native headset like Reverb G2, you have the opportunity for better comfort. You get those Valve Index-like speakers that give you much higher-end audio, and you have native display port, which people appreciate due to the lack of compression. The issue, of course, is that that headset is normally sold at $600, and other PC-native headsets like the Index are all the way up at $1,000. But what we saw in December was Reverb G2 sold for $350 and then $300, and what you see finally for the first time in years in the hardware survey is Windows MR being the top grower. And that's obviously just a result of that pricing. Yeah, we will keep an eye on the comments as always as the show goes on. So if we don't discuss certain things near the top of the show, we might get to it later in the show if we don't address it immediately. I, I don't know if there's a lot to more to talk about here. It was just Interesting to see Pico 4 make it to its mark on this chart. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see that move up, aren't we? Well, I guess the one thing I would say about Pico 4 is that this growth is actually a lot less than I expected. It's not even second place. It's not even third place. It's not even, if you include the other category, fourth place. So what it looks like is that Pico 4 had a very strong launch, but actually hasn't. Uh, managed to keep that momentum going. Obviously, we have to note that it's not sold in North America, so it doesn't have access to that US and Canada market. But still, I really would have expected Pico 4 to, to keep a bit more momentum than this. And that is the one I'm going to be keeping my closest eye on in the coming months in this hardware survey data is what happens to Pico 4? Was this December just a blip and it's going to come back and gain its momentum again? Or is it really just another one of those headsets that has a great launch and then fades away? Yeah, and Guy is piping up in our comments to remind us that Virtual Desktop reports the headset as Quest 2 to Steam VR. So all of his users might be pop might be reporting wrong. So I would be I would be interested to see if Valve uh shifts the way they record their data very soon or somehow uh starts, you know, accounting for more of those Pico 4 users if they are getting recorded wrong. So that's a possibility as well. Uh, let's move on to talking about big screen launching co-watching support for Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. So uh, big screen has been on an update tear uh, recently with a couple major updates and trying to get there with co-watching before the competitors can really match it. Now, this is done, as I understand it, with their browser interface. So they're doing some work uh, with the browser to evolve kind of the way it handles things. I um, I tried to get in there and try it out, and it's still hard to sort of find people who are using, like like friends who are using big screen. I could find strangers' rooms, but that's a little alarming. Like I said, I think I went into a big screen room over the holiday and saw Santa murdering a special ops team, which... uh. Yeah, that was that was the big screen experience for my Christmas uh, right before this this launch. Yeah, it still is one of those apps that uses that room code system where it just isn't practical for VR, in my opinion, to have to somehow communicate a room code that someone then has to transfer from one device and type in in their headset. I know a lot of devs like it. I know some players even like it. But I, personally, I think it's an awful approach to VR that just doesn't work with the current inability to see your phone or PC in the headset. 
Well, all right. So I, I kind of I get you there, but when we get to our later news with Quest One, uh, those room codes become the only way some people can get into an experience uh, really easily, right? Well, no, not really, because well, we're talking about it at the time, but they're deprecating the party system for Quest. It doesn't deprecate the friends and invite system. It's just the persistent background voice call. If anything, it even makes it harder to use room codes because beforehand you could join a party on Quest and then speak out the room code to your friend who can type it in. And that's how a huge percentage of Quest gamers actually enter room codes when they're playing with each other. But now you can't even do that. So you have to text it to each other or use the, the laggy messenger interface. So... Obviously, what Big Screen is doing here is they're optimizing for cross-platform usage where, you know, you can join someone on Steam VR, even if you're on Quest. But I think a lot of devs need to acknowledge that if a huge percentage of your users are using Quest and they're playing with other Quest users, it's going to be a significantly better experience for them if you can just integrate the, fr- the Quest friends list. When I open Population 1 and I want to play with my friend, I see a list of my friends, I click Invite. They see the the invite and they join instantaneously. I'm not saying they should get rid of room codes, but if they want to streamline that experience, you do need to have some sort of friend invite system. Hmm. Yeah, well, co-watching experience is a very, very big deal. I do expect a lot to change between now and this time next year with the way co-watching is supported across a variety of platforms. When I've even had co-watching experiences work sort of outside VR using the Disney Watch Together feature, and Apple AirPods Pro. Uh, it was a really, really nice experience, even with head tracking, to sort of track the audio to wherever the phone is located. Uh, very, very interesting experience that's all laid out there for Apple to take advantage of. And uh, really, really interesting to see big screen sort of at the forefront here, trying to push forward. And I will just note, uh, while we're at the beginning of the show, or before we move on to the next subject, the big screen is teasing some kind of a secret project. So we hope to get more info about big screen's secret project very soon. Um, We ready to move on there? Any comments you want to respond to right now, Heaney? David, Heaney. Shola pointing out that most of their big screen co-watching is with non-Quest users, and you know that is a great point. We really do need some sort of better solution in the long term for how do you play between different VR platforms without this awful system of having to somehow communicate a, a room code to each other. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm fine with the way Walkabout Mini Golf does its room codes. So I just I don't want to like rely on a part on a platform specific party system. Uh, it's t- too much because, like, I mean, I wouldn't want the platform party system without the room codes. Uh, is I guess the way I would put it. Sure, but but the party system is separate to the friend system. You can completely ignore the party system, even if it doesn't exist. You still have a list of friends that you can invite. You know, I'm sure you played plenty of VR games where you just see a list of your friends. You click invite, and that's it. You're yeah. in the game with them. Yep. That needs to get, e- and it obviously does need to get easier. Uh, Shola saying, I wish a cross-platform friends list existed. Yeah. Um, we ready to move on to the next subject, Teeny? Yeah, let's talk about exactly what we were just hinting about, yeah. you know, Quest 1 losing those features. Yeah, so Meta is ending updates for Quest 1 this year, and they're cutting the headset off from some of the built-in social features. Quest 1 was announced personally by Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook CEO, near the end of 2018. It started shipping early, well, more toward the middle 
of 2019. I think it was in May. And then it was on sale until 2020 uh, when it was replaced by the Quest 2. Now, uh, of course, Quest 2 debuted at $300, and then it uh, is now returned to the original Quest 1 price of $400. Kind of a big deal to see this device reach its end of life, uh, at least officially. I expect it to be in a lot of collector's cabinets, Heaney, don't you? Yeah, so I wouldn't call it quite end of life yet. It's certainly approaching end of life. So to be clear, what is happening here is that from now on, there will be no new feature updates. So it will continue to function as normal. From March 5th, it will lose the uh, Horizon Home invite system. So you will no longer have that Horizon Home uh, social experience. It's also losing already the ability to use the party system that we were just referring to, which is just like an Xbox Live style background audio call. And at the end of this year, it will lose security updates. And I think that's when you can kind of call it end of life. Though Meta is still noting that you can still, you know, purchase and download and install apps from the store onto Quest One. So I think what what eventually happened with Go was that developers weren't even allowed to release updates to it anymore. Though given that Quest does use the same store system, it seems like it'll be quite a long time until Quest is completely unable to, for example, you know, download games and use them. So it's it's certainly in its final phase, but it's it's not you know a paperweight just yet. Yeah, I know this that there is like a significant percentage that are still using it for certain apps. Like I was checking to make sure it still was compatible with Supernatural pretty recently because that's like a a really obvious app to hand down to an older like a like a new VR user if you go out and get a new headset. You could obviously uh, hand off this experience and have it run. I do wonder if this kind of puts the green light to devs on ripping out support uh, over time. Yeah, so right now, developers are only able to target Quest 2 only, I believe, if they have like special permission from Meta. So if you're a normal developer that doesn't have this permission, you still have to support Quest 1 on App Lab or on the store. And this is something that developers have actually complained about because the Quest 1 launched in 2019 with a processor that was actually three years old at the time. It was outdated when it was launched from a performance perspective. And Quest 2 came along with a processor that had been released earlier that year. So developers are saying that roughly maybe 5% of their users are actually on Quest 1 because Quest 2 vastly outsold Quest 1. And yet they have to put all of these, all of this time and resources into supporting this older hardware. So I really do hope actually the developers are able to release only for Quest 2. But the other hand of that is that I would repeat what I said in my editorial earlier last year, which was that Meta needs to have a way to bring these Quest 1 buyers forward into the current VR era. And the obvious way to do that is an Apple-style trade-in program. Meta really just needs to let people trade in their Quest 1 for, say, $100 or $150 credit towards a Quest 2. It's a win-win because it means those people can then continue to buy the latest games. They can continue to engage with something like Horizon Worlds that Meta wants them to use but doesn't support Quest 1. And the, it just seems like the alternative is to leave these early adopter customers behind with a paperweight over time. Yeah, I wonder if they could do some kind of a credit system for software rather than hardware, right? Like a, it would be nice to discount har, uh, upgraded hardware, but I could imagine it'd be easier for them to just give you a $50 store credit, right? 
That, that's a great idea, but anything at all, anything other than the situation now where, you know, the Quest 1 was replaced rather quickly in the grand scheme of things, around 18 months with something that was vastly superior from a processing power perspective. It just doesn't feel right to ask people to be early adopters. Like As you said, Mark Zuckerberg introduced this as kind of the ultimate VR form factor, and this was marketed very heavily. This wasn't a low-key headset. And then, you know, people buy this, and then a couple of months later it gets replaced. It doesn't feel right at all. Onakazi talking about the precedent of the Go and what happened there, and then Guy replying with Carmack, John Carmack on, and the fact that the Quest 1 operating system is the same as the Quest 2. I don't think the precedent's going to be followed from the Go. Uh, what do you think on that, Heaney? Yeah, I would completely agree. You know, Go used a kind of older version of the OS that was different from the current situation. You know, Go accessed its own store as well that was separate from the Quest store. Just the Quest 1, the Quest 2, and the Quest Pro use the same OS and they access the same store. So it does seem unlikely that you'll get some sort of open source version. All right. Well, I think we're ready to move on to the next subject here pretty quickly. And I can't wait to hear Guy in our comments talking about the story after that. But The Verge was reporting that they heard or hearing that Roblox is in the works for release on Quest in late 2023. I told my uh, youngest about this bit of rumored news and it was it was it was remarkable how uh how quickly and obviously like it made sense uh you know uh when you realize oh wow wait can i play roblox in my headset and then i can take it off and go play it on my ipad or on my phone and there's a lot of kids and teenagers across the united states well i'll just say kids because that's the, that's the real thing i really wonder about with this roblox news heaney uh Meta has a policy of appealing to those 13 plus. In fact, they instituted Rec Room uh, that, you know, they they enforced Rec Room to enforce this policy of not having junior accounts on Meta devices. What does that mean as we approach this period being talked about by The Verge here? We're, we're lining up for a Quest 3. We would expect that this year. And what could be bigger than getting Roblox for that headset? It's It's really hard to imagine. Um, anything larger. How is Meta going to deal with this and is this actually going to happen? Yeah, there definitely is a strange paradox there where, as you say, Meta has in recent months been trying hard to enforce that 13 plus policy and yet the majority of Roblox users are likely under 13 and this is something that is heavily marketed towards children. So, yeah, I always find it funny as well when you see Quest 2 on a younger child and it just, the proportion looks completely off. The headset is bigger than some of their heads in some cases and it looks like, you know, they're, it's actually physically dragging them forwards with that half a kilogram weight. So maybe if Quest 3 is, as everyone expects, you know, 100 grams or, or more lighter, that, that looks a bit more practical. And yeah, I do wonder if this timing does coincide with Quest 3 because yes, Roblox is graphically simple, but for a VR headset, because there's so much freedom for creators to build in this and they can create at such scale and scope and have so many entities, it does seem like it would be very hard to get something like this running on the Quest 2's Gen 1 XR2 processor from 2020. And I wonder if Roblox, if this rumor is true, and again, this is at just at the rumor stage, perhaps this will just be a Quest 3 exclusive. Meta was not shy about 
having Quest 2 exclusives, you know, even when a lot of people still were using Quest 1. So I wonder if that's going to be what's required to get this running on a standalone headset. You know, we've talked somewhat about the eight studios that Meta has acquired, you know, these very experienced studios that could make quality content if they're, you know, given enough time and have the right, I don't know, create creativity as well as like, uh, you know, structure to really build uh, great products like they're experienced. All those studios have done existing work, but we have yet to see them actually produce a fresh VR game while under the umbrella of Meta. But we haven't heard about Grand Theft Auto and we haven't heard about those Ubisoft projects in a very long time, despite getting announced uh, at this point years ago. And I wonder if those things somehow evaporated, how big a deal Roblox would represent sort of in their stead or alongside those. So Grand Theft Auto, I don't think is to, is to, is more than a, a year ago. It was about a year and a half at most. And a, a game like that, you would expect to take a very long time. I'm, I'm only pushing back on this because you do often hear this line of thinking of, oh, this VR game was announced two years ago. We haven't heard about it. Therefore, it's dead. I mean, in, in this day and age, a, a massive scale triple A or even double A games take four, five, six, seven years to build. So that doesn't seem any more unexpected. You could argue that perhaps Meta announced them far too early and they should wait until there's something closer to release. But yeah, it is interesting to, to see the, the the difference between the dichotomy between those kind of very polished, high budget IP applications like potentially Assassin's Creed and Grand Theft Auto versus something simple like VR chat and uh, Rec Room and Roblox where the significantly lower creator budget is actually what people are spending the most time in VR on. And despite all of the dozens of millions that are spent on those big flagship titles, that's not really what people actually choose to spend all of their time in. It's just, it's kind of, you know, you don't think of Grand Theft Auto as like a creator-based online world. Like you're not, you're not moving things around and creating your own stuff. But it's still a massively, you know, multiplayer sort of thing, right? Like it's it's still in the same very broad genre, and uh, they are obviously appealing to completely different audiences. But it's still uh, interesting to think about the the where Meta puts its marketing and product push with this next headset, right? Like they have to figure out their own kind of best, uh, safest customers to go back to after Quest 2 in order to kind of appeal to people that uh, aren't going and picking up the Sony headset or the Pico headset or uh, the latest HTC headset. Well, I imagine it's going to be both. You know, there's, there are different types of people who want to buy headsets. Some of them are going to be the type that want to play uh, simple but fun and engaging content like Gorilla Tag and Rec Room and potentially Roblox. And there's other people who are really only looking for those giant titles, you know, the likes of the uh, Vader Immortal series and Resident Evil and, you know, maybe Assassin's Creed and those IPs and, you know, Batman and all of those other kind of titles you expect and, and like Grid Autosport, I guess. But I, I guess they're going to want to go much further than just the same people that want to buy Quest 2. If, if we see the same progression meta has been very clear that they want to eventually have a billion people in vr and you had a couple of million that got the quest one and then now we have maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 million that got the quest two i think they're going to be aiming for somewhere between you know 
20 and 40 million with the Quest 3, and that means they have to go wider and broader. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that commentary, and I, it feels weird to kind of compare Roblox to Grand Theft Auto, right, at the end of the day. But like the reason I do that is because there's, there's incentive, incentives to get to a, a larger platform for all of these companies. Like they're all trying to appeal to the largest possible audiences. And uh, that means trying to take, in some cases, time away from what people are doing in other apps. And I think I think of Fortnite as kind of like the cornerstone example where if you're if you're anywhere near the the kind of genres that Fortnite is touching, you're in trouble, right? Like they're they're going to come after your audience again and again and again. And I think that's kind of a story we're going to come back to with this uh, metaverse concept as a backdrop, right? Like that people are like competing for hours spent in the metaverse, uh, if you really want to frame it that way. Uh, I hate using that term, but it, it can be framed that way. Uh, and uh, if you're not like, if you're not getting the full cut of every dollar spent on your platform, you know, that you're not necessarily going to support uh, platforms unless they really pay you a lot of money to come to the table. Like, I, I don't know, like, it's it's a tricky thing. You you can only focus on so many projects at once as well. So you've got to pick sort of uh, whether you're going to have a completely full cut of all your revenue or whether you're going to support a lot of platforms. Yeah, I think we're still with Quest and with these other platforms like Pico. They're still in the era where the main priority isn't sustainable revenue, but on just user growth. It's, you know, like in the early days of Facebook itself, before it even had any revenue coming in, their focus was entirely just let's make this big first and then figure out how to monetize it effectively. And I think, you know, with the 10 to 20 million area we're in now, that's still a long way away. It's still two orders of magnitude away from Meta's goal of making this a billion size industry. And so those sort of revenue considerations are there. Yes, they can't make a completely unsustainable business, but I think the, the focus is still on how do we get people to buy these headsets and more importantly, how do we get people to continue to use these headsets every week? It is interesting that you know just a few weeks after Tim Sweeney confirmed that Fortnite isn't coming to VR, that we get this news coming out. So I wonder if, sorry, this rumor coming out. So I wonder if this is something that's part of Meta's strategy to say, well, if we can't have Fortnite, at least we can have Roblox. Yeah, and there's, of course, I talked about it in the article, but there's other things to think about. What Minecraft, uh, we haven't heard anything on Minecraft in years. And I'm seeing Quentin in our comments making the comment that Roblox is absolutely going to come to Quest first because kids spend more on games than adults and Meta needs a new moneymaker. That is an interesting perspective. And I, I think we should probably end this little segment on just noting the phrasing on this from The Verge. So this was reported by Alex Heath. At The Verge, um, a sort of uh, major reporter who's been reporting scoops on VR for years and uh, coming in their new newsletter there. And there was no sort of specific sourcing other than this language of saying that they heard uh, that this is going to happen um, or this was in the works. So uh, that was sort of this t plans could change. Alex Heath said that them himself. And uh, we have to just note that maybe nothing will come of this, right? Yeah, it's fascinating because I don't think I've seen Heath being so vague before. Usually there's, you know, someone familiar with the matter or a source within Meta or, you know, Microsoft or Apple. But now it's just 
I'm hearing. I've never oh. heard him be that vague. Well, I, uh, I noticed his title is deputy editor, and I think this new newsletter, it's a paid subscription newsletter for The Verge, uh, is probably more personally written, right? Not in this sort of Verge voice, but maybe in this more uh, direct voice. I noticed in the email uh, when I subscribed to it to, to check on the sourcing of the news, um, it was like an email directly from Alex Heath at Verge. It was interesting sort of very direct uh direct way of of contacting your audience yeah so i think we can talk about that intel news now and as you say it'll be very interesting to see what Guy sa- says here because i saw him both on twitter and on the comments of intel's uh, youtube channel giving his thoughts on this Guy <laughs> Godin, obviously the creator of virtual desktop upon which uh you know very much reliant on wi-fi speeds and wi-fi connections uh, Guy obviously is almost single-handedly created virtual desktop and uh, has some very, very strong thoughts on this bit of news. So Intel's highest-end Wi-Fi chip can now directly connect to MetaQuest headsets. Heaney, you and I were talking about this a little bit. Why don't you break down for our audience exactly how this works and how this differs? And then uh, I will read out any comments from Guy uh, deciding to fight with this. Yeah, so this uh, Intel Wi-Fi chip, their highest-end one, the AX1690, is in some high-end gaming laptops like the Razer Blade 15. Uh, You can buy it as a separate chip, which is a slightly different name for PCs, although almost no motherboards have the new connection standard that they use for it. So mainly you'll find this in laptops. And the idea here is that it it has this new feature called Double Connect Technology, DCT, so it can maintain two entirely separate Wi-Fi connections at once. So one of those Wi-Fi connections is the standard old connection between the laptop and your router, which is used for the internet connection. You know, your router passes the internet over Wi-Fi through to your laptop, but the other can be used for a direct connection to your Quest headset. So instead of your Quest having to uh, use its Wi-Fi signal to go from headset to router to laptop, be that last stage via Ethernet or Wi-Fi, it can now just connect directly to the laptop. And this is something that we actually saw in recent months come through D-Link's peripheral, that USB AirBridge dongle, which is $100. And it sort of does the same thing. It allows you to have a direct wireless connection between the headset and your laptop, in that case, via USB. This is essentially the same thing happening, except it's built into the laptop. It's happening internally on the laptop's own antenna rather than separately. So, you know, if you don't already have a laptop with this, I don't think anyone's going to go out and buy one for it. But it is a, it is one of those things where if you do end up buying a gaming laptop that has this feature, it's going to be nice to have because it means that you no longer have to worry about where your router is. You no longer have to have your laptop or PC connected via Ethernet to your router because it no longer matters because the headset uh, is going directly to the PC. There is no sort of uh, via the router. Now, I'm sure Gigodin will point out, I haven't checked the comments yet because I still have these images up. I'm sure Gigodin will rightly point out that if you already have a high-quality setup uh, for virtual desktop where you have your PC connected via Ethernet to a nearby Wi-Fi 6 or Wi-Fi 6E router, there's very little advantage to this. There's not any magic sauce that will make this somehow better. But for the people who 
aren't able to have their laptop connected via Ethernet, for the people who aren't able to be near their router, or even people who are on the go. If you have, if you just bring your laptop along with you anywhere, even a hotel room, even to a friend's house, and they don't have internet or something like that, you don't have to worry about having a connection. It's just direct. So uh, Guy's comment here was that you could already connect directly to a computer using a Windows hotspot, so it's nothing new. What's new is the dual band part. Yes, yeah, so you could, but then you would have to, uh, in most cases on most PCs, uh, forego the internet connection at that point, or it would be splitting the connections where you know it can only do one at a time. So that's not ideal for something that's latency and connection quality uh, sensitive like VR. Yeah, I can't remember where I saw this comment, but when we get to the Apple stuff, uh, this will be relevant. But I do, I do think a lot about the fact that Apple had uh, routers back in the day. Like that was a big, you know, small market for them when they were a smaller company, and uh, they kind of moved out of that. And there's other companies now doing the control of the router data, and it it just seems like we're entering a uh, a generation of VR where. Uh, and not not just VR, but AR and everything else. Where you, it would be nice if you could rely on very, very, very fast internet whenever you get close. And it seems like a problem smart software can help with. And I know there's a lot of uh, companies out there. I'm I can't decide whether to say router or router because I've got you in my head. Um, but like, yeah, it, it seems like something that I would imagine Apple and others to compete again on in order to make this even better than this current system. Well, I would expect that if Apple does plan to do uh, Mac-based VR, which we have no indication that Apple does plan to do anything like that, all of the reports so far indicate that it will be fully standalone and that the M2 chip will, you know, be as fast as any of those baseline MacBooks anyway. So I doubt Apple will actually do that. But if they did want to, they could do this in a software solution that's built into Macs. That's something that I'm sure they could pull off. I think what this is building towards, though, is just a future where PC VR is a lot more seamless. Because whether you use AirLink or virtual desktop today, there always is that problem of where is your router? And if your router is three if it's three rooms down the hallway and there's you know a lot of thick walls in the way, it doesn't matter how good the software is. There is no software magic that will be able to solve a signal being degraded by that sort of distance and obstacles. This, this direct connection solution clearly is the future. I expect that eventually something like the Quest Pro's dock will have this kind of thing built in so that even when you're just streaming your uh, Windows or Mac PCs, uh, windows and and monitor views to your headset, you can have that direct connection. Because the problem is you can just never rely on people having a consistent router quality. Some people are using these amazing Wi-Fi 6E routers that they bought for you know $100 or $200 and set up themselves and have wired by Ethernet. Great. If you're one of those people, you don't need anything like this. But let's be honest, most people are using the, the router that their ISP provided them, which in many cases is the cheapest router that their ISP could possibly find. And it's not in any sort of ideal scenario. So it's just another kind of way to make PC VR more seamless over time. So, uh, Guy, in our comments saying, average HMD VR latency less than 5 milliseconds is just a lie. It takes more time than this just to render the game, let alone encoding, decoding. Can you break down what we're, we're talking about there? 
Yeah, so Intel's chart here is obviously referring to the transmission latency only, which is, you know, as Guy points out rightly, it's misleading for them to talk about this as the VR latency. That is only the wireless transmission latency. And again, as Guy rightly points out, there's a very, very careful usage here of up to 30 milliseconds. In other words, in saying, if you do have that situation where you have an ISP provided router five rooms down the hall and you're using the 2.4 gigahertz and it's you know having to retransmit constantly you are going to maybe get up to 30 milliseconds transmit but most people are not getting anywhere near that worst case i think it's very right for you to point out that this is misleading marketing by intel and intel should focus on what dealing focused on in their marketing which is everything i've just been saying in that it takes out all of those extra steps and it takes out all of that work to have to get the ideal setup you no longer have to get an ideal setup they shouldn't be focusing on trying to pretend that this is somehow technically magically superior so i'm just going to read off uh, andrew bosworth the meta cto his comment on twitter where he uh, also said that uh, their data meta's data suggests that this technology would be an improvement for a meaningful percentage of quest 2 consumers now, that's interesting like that's that's almost one of the strongest things they say about sort of the value of PC VR to their Quest 2 audience. Like they've they've largely moved on from PC VR, but to have them kind of give an indication that uh, it's still interesting, you know, it's still meaningful to some of their audience is is a good sign. But it's I kind of it, I don't know. Air Airlink's days seem numbered, uh, or Air Bridge's uh, days seem numbered. Really, I, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, it, I, it's clear that Meta isn't investing in content anymore. But why would they be investing in partnerships like this? And why would they be releasing the AirBridge dongle with D-Link? And why would they be, you know, adding a few months ago those extra stability features, uh, free rate insurance to AirBridge? It's, it's clear that uh, it's still no, I'm useful. Arguing, sorry, go ahead. I'm just, I guess, I'm arguing that the push should be internal, right? Like it should be internal hardware that does this best and first, and they try to equip as many, you know, what will be the branding, I guess, Heaney, of uh, meta-compatible PCs? Like, what what, what, what label are they going to come come at now that we're going full circle with this, this system? Yeah, I think in the very long term, that is the future, but it's going to take a long time for this to trickle down into affordable gaming laptops. Uh, as I was saying, this is only in Intel's highest-end chip, the AX1690, uh, which is, you know, it's a Wi-Fi 6E chip that is in those really expensive gaming laptops. The one I looked at, the Razer Blade 15, was like $2,500 or something. And most gaming laptops are still sold around the kind of $1,200 range. So it will take years until people have this in their actual laptops. And in the meantime, a USB dongle seems like the ideal solution. But it does seem like such a shame that that D-Link dongle for $100 doesn't have Wi-Fi 6E, the 6 gigahertz, whereas this does. And obviously, if you get your own 6E router, it will. Yeah, no, I think, sorry, I think I misspoke about the AirBridge and uh, people in the comments are bringing up. No, I think I'm just overly frustrated that it it launched with incompatibility with Quest Pro and it uh, doesn't make any sense. And, and I, this, there's this follow-up comment, uh, Meta doesn't have enough focus. Quentin, I think that's what I'm speaking to there. I'm just this frustration that um, there's no overarching PC policy that's that's really clear to an audience. Guy is saying, if you have the money to buy a high-end laptop, you likely have the money for a $35 dedicated, $35 dedicated route, router. 
So yeah, yeah, you can get a Wi-Fi six, not six E, but six router for thirty-five dollars on sale. You know, that's not the standard price off sale. And again, it still comes back to that fact that this is then another device that you have to set up in a room with an Ethernet cable connected to your laptop. It's something that, yes, enthusiasts who are technologically competent and like to follow this sort of stuff and make sure they have the ideal setup can get something that is already great and they don't need to have these integrated solutions. But as, as you know, I feel like we always kind of come back to whether it's the AirBridge or this. These technologies are not for those people. These are to make sure that anyone, just an average person that says, I want to buy VR, I want to play wirelessly with my Quest 2 or my Quest Pro, what laptop do I get that can just do that? They can then now have a solution. It's interesting to think about the minimum spec uh, needing to have Wi-Fi in there uh, and or its Wi-Fi speeds as like a more important thing going forward, right? Like, uh, and I don't know, you know, how do you, how do you, convey to a user you not just you don't just need this you need also a graphics card that can run half-life alex or flight simulator like if that's really the reason you're going and getting the pc you've got multiple specifications to consider at this point i don't think this idea that was kind of popular around the launch of the oculus rift and htc vive in 2016 that pc gaming was somehow going to magically be able to turn into a consoleized experience through vr i don't I never believed in that vision, and I don't think it's ever going to come to fruition. I don't think you're going to get people who aren't technologically sort of uh, clued up, uh, people who are into PC gaming, magically somehow become, you know, uh, magically get an experience that is streamlined by just having, you know, Quest-compatible stickers put on the laptops. I think people that want that are going to get the PlayStation VR 2, and that's going to be the system that provides high-end VR in a consoleized experience. And the people who want, you know, a streamlined Switch-like experience that is just one console that is wireless and cheap are going to get native Quest 2 and Pico. I can't see PC gaming becoming, you know, magically easy to use just because of VR. So we've got a couple people asking pr- pretty standard questions that we get in and out, week in and week out, but I want to respond. We are not using the face and eye tracking inside of the Quest Pro, but we are wearing Quest Pro headsets. We've got little... uh little uh mic filters uh, right over our mics to try to improve the audio quality and uh yeah but we're not active with the face and eye tracking it's just really really amazingly low latency latency work from david heaney here in our studio to get that to look right and when i look at him uh my eyes kind of move in the expected way um I think we're ready to move on to the next subject. We've still got a lot to get through with this show. So Quest 2's GPU performance is now 7% higher than before. And this was done via a software update. 7%. That's pretty significant. That's that's not nothing. Uh, it's not, you know, the quarter or double updates that we would expect generation to generation. But to get that kind of performance this far into the GPU, you know, Quest 2's life cycle, that's that's going to give a little bit more oomph to, I don't know, people that might want to hold those headsets around for a couple of years and not upgrade. Yeah, this was a very surprising one. This dropped in the second last week of December. So we, you know, we hadn't had a, a regular show since then. So we haven't had a chance to talk about it. But yeah, this is fascinating. So on Quest 2, the system will automatically clock up and down the GPU's clock speed to give the running application slash game 
the performance it needs without wasting battery life. Because if you were to keep the GPU pinned all the way to its maximum frequency all the time, uh, you would just A, waste battery life, and two, uh, generate heat that's unnecessary. So before this update, the maximum clock speed for the GPU in Quest 2 was 490 megahertz. And after this update, what they've done is they simply changed that maximum from 490 to 525 megahertz. And as Ian says, that represents a 7% increase in the maximum. So if a game isn't actually taxing the Quest 2, if you're playing something incredibly graphically simplistic, nothing will change here. But if you were playing a game that is taxing the Quest 2, and in the past maybe you would have seen frame drops as it hits that maximum GPU frequency, but is still at 100% utilization, now the system can bring it up even further by 7%. The weirdest part here is, though, that this will only apply for now when you launch an application, then take the headset off and put it back on, or just turn it off with a little button on the side and turn it back on from standby to back on. Uh, Meta says that that will be changed in the V49 update. Given that we're currently on V47, that could be quite a while, although it's possible they plan to skip V48. But yeah, this could be used by developers to slightly increase the resolution of their game since they now have 7% more GPU power to work with, or they could just leave the game as is with no update, nothing at all, and it will just have more power and therefore less frame drops, more consistent frame rate. Yeah, I want to say thank you to everyone watching with us right now. Please share, like, comment, subscribe, uh, become members if you can. Uh, but yeah, please get this out to everyone. We're about to get into our CES uh, stuff very soon. That's going to be a whole other layer of discussion to talk about that whole experience and the things I saw there. Um, any comments you want to respond to there, Heaney, before we move on? Uh, well, a, a few people bringing up the concept of PlayStation VR 2 coming to Steam, but I think we'll leave that for another <laughs> I day. I was going to leave it. I wasn't going to mention it, Heaney. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to take the bait. <laughs> but I appreciate you talking about the commenters talking about PSVR 2 on PC. Uh, I noticed the comment pointing out that yeah, Steam. Uh, what is it? Point zero two percent or something uh, of people used PSVR one on Steam. I still, I still think that's magical. I, I kudos to those people. I'd like to interview the, the point zero two percent people who uh, went and installed that. Uh, yeah, go, go and fill in your bingo cards. I want to say thank you to our sponsor, uh, Vale VR. Let's put up their trailer. So yeah, thank you to our sponsor, Vale VR. Vale VR is a five v five tactical shooter game developed from the ground up for virtual reality. This might just be the next big VR person shooter. You can check out Vale on Steam, where fans are giving it very positive reviews with praise for its full-body avatars, gameplay, and physics. Developers are constantly responding to community feedback, and there's an active Discord group where you can connect with the Vale community. Vale VR is available now on Steam. I almost thought it was an available joke. Yeah. Name, but no. No, <laughs> I'm just uh, people. Right. I'm sorry if I'm not more enthusiastic when I'm reading off the sponsorships. I'm I'm trying to get uh, the right uh, management of of reading what's actually there uh, while uh, you know making sure it's it's uh, coming across right. It's it's tough to be able to read off these teleprompters sometimes. So a few questions here on that last story. Serious Goo asking, same cooling. How does that work? Meta didn't actually talk about how this works. 
uh, presumably they've done the tests and checked that you know this doesn't put the components at any uh, issue or stress. Presumably, you know they found some sort of way maybe to manage the heat and other components. They were very vague about what actually made this possible. So I would actually love to know the answer to that. And Andrew Tech asks, uh, will we see more games adding support for eye tracked foveated rendering? Because obviously we saw Red Matter Two use that to provide a 30% increase in base resolution. The answer there is that the newest Unity integration and SDK versions that support that are still a little bit rough around the edges. So developers are kind of hesitant to upgrade their projects there just yet. I think as that becomes, you know, as more and more SDK versions are released and that becomes something that has just been available for many versions, that's something we'll likely see. But it's probably not a focus for developers because the vast, vast majority of their users, the vast, 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 vast majority are on Quest 2, which doesn't have eye tracking. And the leaks so far suggest that Quest 3 will not have eye tracking. So this is something that only benefits Quest Pro users, which are a tiny percentage of their user base. You know, people in the comments talk about my accidental puns. Yeah, it's usually accidental. I uh, only intend about half my puns, unlike Kyle, who intends everything, uh, every pun he makes. Um, are we ready to move on to the Bloomberg reports and Apple, or is there anything else in this subject? I, I think there's interesting strategy being applied to this, right? Like, how long do you think Quest 2 is going to be on the market, Heaney? Yeah, so the, the last thing I just wanted to point out in this story is Sirius Goo has pointed out that the XR2 Gen 1's GPU is actually capable of 587 megahertz, and that's what you see in Pico 4. So Pico 4 has a superior cooling system to Quest 2, and thus, while Meta has narrowed that gap a little bit, developers can still bring a little bit more resolution out on Pico 4 than anything. But yeah, that is an interesting question, of course. Uh, how long will this will Quest 2 be on the market? Uh, I, I strongly believe that it will be dropped when Quest 3 is released, but I think it will still be supported for years and years to come. Like, you, Would you expect that period to be longer than the Quest 1 period, like uh, for, for much, formal updates and support? Yes, much, much longer, because as we were saying before, Quest 1 launched with a processor that was two and a half years old, whereas Quest 2 launched with a processor that was something like five or six months old. So... It's just the fact that Meta really should have released Quest 1 with a more recent processor or, you know, obviously this is impossible, but in an ideal world, released Quest 1 earlier. Quest 2, because it has a processor that's so recent, the same processor that's in headsets even releasing today, you know, the Vive XR Elite is using the same processor as Quest 2 and it's just launching today. In fact, it hasn't even launched yet. So Quest 2, I think, will have, even though Quest 3 will be much more powerful, Quest 2 is powerful enough and recent enough that it will still be able to be uh, a viable pl target for years to come. And also, as we said, you know, Quest 1 sold maybe 1 or 2 million units, and Quest 2 has sold 10 times that, 10 to 20 million units. So there's just a much larger base of people that they will want to keep buying content. They'll want to keep them playing Horizon Worlds. They'll want to keep them on the platform in general. Yeah, I, I obviously the dropping of Quest 2 when Quest 3 comes on makes sense. There is that thing I always think about, Heaney, of, of trying to turn the old device into the lower end, you know, cheaper model. But I don't think we're necessarily at that point. And then there was the other thing you talked about earlier, which was the, the buyback program. So this comment from Dune to Dim saying, Quest 1 gang, yeah, I Quest 1 is going in a collector's area uh, 
I've got the case for it. I saw I saw one at the one of the game used game stores, and it's. Uh, I think those things are going to be uh, collectors' items for a long time. Um, hello, Alex. I saw you at CS. We're about to get to the CS portion of this. It was great seeing you. And uh, yeah, what do you want to want to say there, Heaney? Onikazi's, you know, asking if the Vive XR Elite maybe uses the same XR2 Plus that's in the Quest Pro. According to HTC spec sheet, no. Although I did note that XR Elite does have 12 gigs of RAM, so maybe it is, but that's still not a big difference. The XR2 Plus is not a dramatically different processor to the XR2. It is just the XR2 with the RAM moved off to the side for better cooling and support for more RAM. It's not, it's still. It's still that same 7 nanometer chip from 2020. It's not in any way radically different. And, you know, we were just talking about the clock speeds. That 525 megahertz, the Quest 2's GPU maxes out, is the exact same as the 525 megahertz that the Quest Pro's GPU maxes out. They are the same GPU. They have the same CPU cores. They are almost identical. So I want to get to the Apple section of this and give us, so we've got a full hour for the CS stuff here in a minute. But I do want to call out Christian's question because I think it's a great one for you, Heaney. We've had it before, and uh, it's, a, it's a good one to come back to all the time. So Christian asking, do you guys have any tools for devs to start switching to VR development? I've been doing web dev for years, and I'm still wondering if it's worth my time to start learning VR and AR. Now, the, the second part of that question, if it's worth my time to start learning VR and AR, uh, I love that question. Uh, I'm just going to share a quick anecdote before I throw it to Heaney. Uh, I saw Neil Stevenson, the creator of Snow Crash at CES, uh, you know, the, the person who coined the term metaverse. Um, and he was, he was there uh, in the audience for Vive. I guess uh, Vive is working with Neil Stevenson. And uh, I walked up to him after the press conference and basically asked him if I could, if he could go on the record because he worked at Magic Leap and uh, wanted to know what his, his thoughts on the Magic Leap situation was. And um, uh, he said he couldn't be, he couldn't be recorded or he couldn't give an interview. So I said, okay, uh, can you, um, I can't remember. I asked him some other subject uh, and then I, he, he wouldn't, uh, respond on that either i said okay well thank you hopefully we can talk another time and i walked away and uh right as i'm walking away this other guy comes up for uh it's either at the beginning of the conversation or at the end of the conversation but this other guy wants to pose for a photo with neil stevenson and the guy says thank you you basically got me into this line of work and uh stevenson responds well i i hope that was a good idea for you and I, I, I love that way of thinking, right? Like, okay, so uh, it is horribly difficult out there uh, in VR and AR. And uh, I, I don't want to be the, you know, at the, at, the, at the same time, I would take pride in uh, being the reason someone got into VR development. Uh, I, I don't want there to be any kind of, uh, um, you know, hyping uh, that the market is any larger than it actually is right now. Yeah, so that is obviously a question that no one can really answer as to whether it's worth your time. But the the real question you're going to be asking yourself there as a web developer is, should you go for WebXR or should you go for native you know, Unity or Unreal Engine? The vast majority of content that people are actually using today on standalone headsets is made in Unity. 
and that is just going to be the case for a very long time. WebXR has become more convenient recently through the ability to launch a WebXR experience directly from your laptop or phone or PC to your headset, but it's still not what most people are using. But I would say if you are a web developer, you might as well start by playing around with it. So as James O'Loughlin points out in the comments, you can use the A-Frame com- uh, framework by Mozilla, and you can use that with the 3.js engine and play around with that. Uh, Meta also has their own React VR framework. But really, you probably will want to start looking into native apps and playing around with the likes of Unity. And so just using doing any kind of modern Unity getting started VR tutorial and following through and building something is probably the best way to start. But if you are an experienced web developer, I would say play around with WebXR and see what you can get done there first. Great advice. And uh, Guy uh, making the joke, or uh, I don't know how much of a joke it is, but stay away from WebXR. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, I don't. WebXR, we're going to have to see how far it really goes. I'm routinely impressed by some of the things that come out of WebXR, but it needs kind of, uh, I don't know, it needs a killer app. Uh, It doesn't have that. I know they had that Moonrider app, which was a kind of a knockoff of Beat Saber and was pretty cool in WebXR. But, you know, nothing was done with that. And I think they took it offline because it was costing them a lot of money. I think what's missing from WebXR right now is a monetization strategy. I think if the Quest browser gets support for the Web Payments API, and thus you can pay for things in the browser just as you would through the store, you just put in your meta pin and that's it, That's that would radically incentivize WebXR development. But the problem is right now, if you want to actually make money and there's nothing wrong with that. You have to you have to feed yourself. You have to pay rent. Making money is something that every developer or the vast majority of developer needs to do. It's very very inconvenient to do that in WebXR right now. Nobody wants to type their credit card details in their VR headsets browser while looking down through the nose gap, and you don't want to have some sort of system where you have to pay outside the headset. So if you if you actually want to just play around, sure with WebXR. But if you really do want to make a viable product or business. Native is the only real practical way to go for now. Yeah, Christian's saying that their question was a little bit more philosophical, wondering how big the market would be. It would be bad to invest years of my time just to end up being the new 3D TV. I, yeah, that, that analogy is a little bit easier to handle, right? It is not the new 3D TV. It is a fundamentally uh, different medium, right? You interact with content in a in a natural way, the way you do in the real world. And I think if you if you frame your line of thinking of what you're learning in those terms, like you're learning how to build software that interacts with people uh, more directly, right? Using their gestures, their voice, their uh, commands. Uh, if you think about the software from that perspective, you're not investing time in 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 the wrong thing. Like every computing system everywhere is learning how to interact with you in a more uh, natural uh, way in in the ways you already express yourself. So if you think of uh, breaking down, you know, moving away from mouse and keyboard a little bit, maybe like that's that's maybe the way to think about it. Like, is it a bad investment of your time to build something that relies on mouse and keyboard input or touch input? Or this more uh, immersive, direct interface, um, and and how do you build a business on top of that? Is the ultimate challenging question. Yeah, there are developers making real money in VR. VR is not like just some sort of gimmick tech like three D TV. It is a real 
viable new platform, but it is a very new one and we're still in the early days. And a lot less people own a VR headset than own something like a tablet or a phone or even like a games console. So if it is something you want to make money for, you have to find a application or use case or game concept that people really want to pay for and and use. And that's difficult. And it's not as open and large a market as those other tech, but definitely start playing around with it at the very least. All right. So let's get to CES by way of getting through Apple first. So there are a couple of reports out there. There's a report from Bloomberg suggesting that prototype models of Apple's mixed reality headset are in third-party developers' hands, as well as the information reporting uh, a lot about the expected new features of Apple's headset. Now, uh, we've got to sort of deal with the elephant in the room, which is that Apple can always cancel its product at the last minute, but we don't think that's happening here. And if it's true that the device is in developers' hands, uh, I think that's kind of the line you cross over into where you kind of go into a point of no return. But we've only got that as a kind of a rumor right now. We're going to need more confirmation that this headset is in the hands of developers. But Heaney, why don't you run us through the features there? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of focus being put on this being in developers' hands. But from the other reports we've heard, this thing was already, you know, entering getting very ready to enter mass production. It's already in the engineering sample phase. This is very much so real. This is not like years ago where there were all those rumors of Apple releasing a headset and they never came to fruition. This is something we've been following for years now and there are multiple sources across the supply chain, across reliable journalists. This does seem to be real this time. So that report from the information detailed some of the specs that will reportedly be in this product and the information is citing Uh, multiple sources. This is not just coming from one person inside Apple. This is coming from, I think, in total, the report had between four and seven, depending on how you count it, sources uh, claimed from inside Apple. They are saying that it will have a 120-degree field of view. Uh, That compares to Quest 2 being around 96 and Quest Pro being around 106, so a wider field of view. Uh, Dual 4K OLED micro-displays, and that compares to Quest 2 and Quest Pro having less than 2K per eye resolution. They're saying that it may use a waist-tethered battery, so a wire will run down from your head to your waist instead of having the battery be on the back of your head, like a Pico 4 or Quest Pro. And they it will reportedly have eye tracking, face tracking, hand tracking, and even downwards-facing cameras for leg tracking, as well as LiDAR sensors to mesh in your room for mixed reality. And the weirdest spec of all, or feature of all, I should say, a front display on the exterior that passes through those eye-tracking cameras so that you can continue to see the person's facial expression even while they're in the headset. And that's something we saw Meta show prototypes from research for a few years ago, but Meta has not talked about that being on their product roadmap. And obviously, if it's done badly, it will look stupid and comedic, but if it's done well, it could kind of reduce that sense of Uh, local isolation that you have when one person is using a headset and others in the room aren't. So this, the the report kind of finishes by saying that they are standing by their earlier reporting, that this will be priced around $3,000. So it looks like this is not going to be some sort of mass market 
quest killer. This is not going to be something that Apple's trying to make, you know, VR or mixed reality mainstream. This is just a showcase product that gets it out to the world, gets it in the hands of developers and shows what mixed reality can really do when integrated with Apple's end-to-end software stack. I liked Free Sky's comment saying, you know what's funny? I can't get my friends to buy a $400 Quest, but I bet they will buy the $3,000 Apple headset. Uh, there's that's, that's obviously very joking, but there's an element of truth to that for at least a small percentage of people, right? And uh, obviously this question from Hump Funky at the bottom, who is it for? And that is going to be the, the, the kind of core question when this device actually comes out. People are looking at the Quest Pro and wondering the same thing. Um, yeah, Daniel, was it Daniel Leeper's question? He had another one. Um, yeah, Guy saying it's such a re- such a waste of resources. Um, yeah, I, I don't know who it's for yet, Heaney, and I, I don't. It's hard for me to see it. <sighs> I see how it changes things, right? You've talked about them using mixed reality for years as a differentiator, and until I see what input system they've landed on, I can't, I can't make heads or tails of how that's going to work. So I think this is for the same kind of use cases that Quest Pro was built for, except reportedly it will actually have the specs and design to back it up. The Quest Pro, we talked a lot before it launched about this use case of having your triple monitors that you can basically give yourself a ideal workspace setup on the go. The problem, of course, is that it still has the Quest 2's resolution and it, it just is not sufficient for that use case. I think anyone who's used the Quest Pro will say the resolution just isn't good enough for a practical monitor replacement. But this Apple headset will reportedly have a significantly improved angular resolution via those 4K OLED micro displays. And unlike Quest Pro, where you're having to install this meta application and there's this kind of friction between using a Microsoft or Apple operating system with a meta headset, this will all likely be completely integrated, just like Apple's other continuity features. This will be something that, you know, you put your headset on and look at your MacBook and press a button and instantaneously your MacBook's displays are now, you know, you now have triple MacBook displays and maybe it'll use the, the physical right, real display. All right, I'll buy it, Amy. You sold me. Thank you. <laughs> I'll buy it. I'm done. I'm there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the $3,000. I'm going to forgo a house and I'm going to live in Apple Reality Pro for a couple of years. The, the other use case, I think, is that, again, another one that the Quest Pro was talking about, which is virtual meetings. That's something that this report mentioned. It's something that Bloomberg's report mentioned. Uh, the difference is that this will reportedly have leg tracking. It will have a wider field of view so you can see more people. It will likely let you very easily integrate Apple's existing iWork suite, like Keynote, uh, into this system, and <laughs> like FaceTime. People are, del- are people just still making presentations in, 20, in the 2020s? Like that's still like a, like a work task? I can't, I thought that would have died uh, with COVID, but... I, th- um, I think people still are. <laughs> you know, there's, there's what Silicon Valley talks about being the mainstream current trends. And then there's what, you know, the thousands of boring businesses that people go to every day and use computers from 10 years ago kind of do every day. It'll be fascinating to see whether Apple's uh, face tracking system is better, whether 
that M2 processor, that MacBook level processor that is reportedly in this thing, whether that will allow for significantly higher fidelity avatars. Uh, I really want to know if that leg tracking rumor is true, because then you don't just have these uh, upper body torsos of meta avatars, but you also then have your legs in the fold. I, I just think even if this was just a Quest Pro in specs, but it had all of Apple's software polish and integration, and you know, to quote some of Meta's uh, detractors, the software wasn't terrible, it would still be a compelling product. But the fact that they're going to do this in reportedly a, a lighter headset that has double the angular resolution and wider field of view and a processor that is like two or three times more powerful, it just seems like I don't think the core idea of the Quest Pro was wrong. I just don't think it had the hardware to back it up. And if Apple has the hardware to back it up and better software, that is a compelling product. But again, it's not mass market. This is the first generation. I don't actually think lots of people are going to buy this at $3,000. But what happens when two or three years down the line, there's another Apple headset that's $1,500. And then two years after that, $1,000 around the same price as the MacBook Air. Yeah, so Guy was talking about the external screen that supposedly shows your face on the external side of the headset. Uh, that was what he was referring to when he was saying the waste of resources. And I People are pretty divided over whether that's going to be a must-have feature or a gimmick, and I I cannot wait to kind of test it. Uh, I tried something called Kokomo at CES from Canon, and uh, I, you know, like Heaney, we 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 tend to try to focus on the things that work, uh, and 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 amplify the things that work. Uh, I wanted to see what this uh, system was, and they they face scanned my avatar, and then I went and saw like a did a live video call with someone in another location. Like, that's a hard hard problem to solve, and I you know I tried a Google a Google research project at Seagraph years ago, where you did the same thing. You did a a, a scan of your head. And then they replaced your head on your avatar. That, you know, if you want nightmare fuel, that's that's a good way to do it. If you don't, you know, don't do it right. Um, and then Guy also or Guy also adding that 4K per eye micro LED should be a major upgrade in terms of resolution. I think good enough for replacing a monitor. Yeah, it should be. I think if Apple really does have these specs, it will be the first headset that consumers can buy that does finally reach that threshold and i think that's going to convert a lot of the skeptics to that use case on screen now if you're a viewer obviously not if you're a listener but if you're a viewer you'll see meta's research from a few years ago of reverse pass-through this concept we're talking about of having an external display that passes through the eye tracking cameras and i think it really does just depend on the implementation if the implementation is bad it will be nightmare fuel but if it's done well it, it, you know, it connects people in the room more. It solves that problem that Tim Cook was reportedly always kind of very annoyed about with opaque headsets, which is that you are just disconnected from everyone else in the same room. But I wonder, how much does it add to the cost? How much does it add to the reported engineering complexity that has apparently delayed this headset by around two years now? And is this something that's ever going to be practical to be in mainstream headsets that people can actually afford? Or is this one of those things that's going to be in that 3000 headset but get dropped when Apple is faced with competition? And you know, if Meta does uh, get its act together with software quality and simplicity and it's offering you know a lot of these features in a, in a $400 headset, will Apple just decide this isn't worth the cost in a few years? Yeah, it's, it is a really hard 
you would think that the the path forward to smaller headsets would kind of get rid of the need for I mean obviously we're seeing it here like this is kind of like imagining where you're just doing the HMD and um I don't know like I said the, the I should find the image and put it up on uh on our TV to show what the Kokomo uh headset looked like but it's it's not good if this doesn't match up right um I think that's a good transition to start talking about CES. Uh, you ready to get into it, Heaney? Yeah, let's talk about CES. And I think if I'm right, we're going to start by talking about Lynx R1. Well, yeah. So I missed a couple face-to-face demos uh, at CES. I had a couple days there in Las Vegas to uh, get to as many demos as I possibly could. Uh, got to see some really, really interesting things. Um Lots of things that showed promise in different ways, but also just recognizing how hard it is to do these things uh, at the level they need to, to to find a real market is is constantly holding back some of these ideas. But Lynx R1, uh, right at the outset of CES, they announced that they are starting to ship to their earliest backers. Now, that is a big deal, Heaney. Uh, this is a long time coming. Do you want to recap what this headset is uh, compared to the rest of the market? So this was supposed to ship uh, around a year ago, almost a year ago. And the pitch for this headset is that you know it was announced before the Quest Pro was announced. And had it launched on time, it would have been the first mixed reality headset and by mixed reality i mean a headset that has a vr style opaque display but uses high resolution color cameras on the exterior to pass through a reconstruction of the real world lynx was the first to announce a consumer product that uses this concept Uh, they were not the first to ship as i said quest pro got there first but they are now shipping and it is essentially uh, a lot cheaper than quest pro so it's, it's difficult to see what the wider market potential of this is, but if they can attract a lot of the appealing mixed reality content that may emerge in the coming years for the likes of Quest Pro and Quest 3, I really hope they have a place in the market still. The problem is I just wonder, have they now gotten to the point where they're so close to Quest 3 that a lot of people who would have otherwise bought links are going to wait for Quest 3 because reportedly Quest 3 will have this same mixed reality capability but with a much more powerful processor and at a lower price than Lynx because you know Lynx is using that same XR2 Gen 1 that we've just discussed being in Quest Pro and a slightly modified version and in Vive XR Elite and in Pico 4 and in Quest 2 so essentially what you know what you have here is kind of a, a midpoint between Quest 2 and Quest Pro, but without the Quest platform. And as a you know, as a purely XR mixed reality device, yes, but how does it actually compete in the wider consumer market is I just don't understand. Yeah, there is a lot to expect there. Artful right at the bottom of our comments uh, saying that they were supposed to get a survey as a Kickstarter backer but did not receive it. We'll have to follow up and see where they are uh, on their sort of delivery there. I did go and find, let's see if I can pull it up, uh, the image of Kokomo uh, that I took off of their presentation. Um, And I wanted to show that. Yeah, here we go. So this is what you see when you're inside the headset. 
uh, yeah, that's yeah. I just wanted to give that visual. Um, that's uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this all right. So I took the still off of their like presentation that was up on the press conference screen, and uh, I'm only showing it because it is representative of what I saw uh, inside the headset uh, over at the Canon booth. All right, so let's let's get that image off the the TV um, and go back to our comments I'll, as we move yeah, on. I'll put up an image of last CES. This was me at CES last year trying out Lynx. Uh, this is the transparent edition that some Kickstarter backers got. You know, what I would say is that the mixed reality in this is actually better than the mixed reality in Quest Pro. So, you know, from a perspective of the actual resolution and clarity, Lynx is doing very impressive work here. And if you're just someone who does not want to pay $1,500, but you do want a mixed reality headset, you want a headset that can show your real world in color, you want to, you're maybe a developer, you're a business, you're, you're someone who needs this for a, a niche use case, this is going to be a, a great option in the market. It's just, unfortunately, because of the global supply chain crisis that has affected so many hardware startups, this has just shipped so much later than they originally had intended to ship. This is coming into a market where we now have the big players releasing products that have the same capability. And yes, Lynx was first to prototype it, or, you know, sorry, Lynx was the first to publicly prototype it, but it doesn't matter if you can't actually ship. And I, I do feel really bad for the, for all of these hardware startups that in the past two years have just been destroyed by this supply chain crisis because suppliers of these components that go into these products have always, and they always will, prioritize the big companies. They do not want to lose out on good fortune and goodwill with the big companies. They don't want the big companies to go and look for other suppliers or worse, as Apple does in many cases, just try to do the whole thing in-house. And that means that Lynx and other companies have just been put to the back of the queue, and that's the unfortunate reality we're in. Mm. Yeah, I'm seeing Skiva talk about the pledge to not have tracking, to not uh, use that data. That was also at the end of the HTC presentation. They 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 made a similar sort of appeal to not using data in the same way as other platforms. Um, you know, I think at some point, Heaney, we're going to need we're going to need data, uh, you know, security researchers to take closer looks at these VR headsets uh, and uh, verify some of this stuff. Um, and I, I know we've got Guy Godin in our comments who kind of takes a software stance uh, in his software to not track info. But like to the platforms that actually build uh, these hardware devices that we put on our heads, the, the analytics that they put into these systems helps them make the products better. Um, and it becomes a, a difficult thing, like how much detail they actually get out of their data or how much they need to actually get these products better. It, it brings me back to Apple, I think, a lot, uh, Heaney, about just how Apple's going to fit into our lives and how they're going to do that without that data necessarily uh, at their fingertips. Yeah, well, Apple does still collect the same kind of analytics as a lot of these bigger companies. Apple's privacy commitment is in some ways real and in other ways a very clever and curated marketing campaign to try and distinguish themselves. Um, I have some great questions here from Skiva and James O'Loughlin. And Skiva points out that this has ultraly pan tracking and that relates to James O'Loughlin's question of how is the hand tracking compared to Quest 2 and Pro? And so that is 
a great point because I do need to point out that this thing has much better hand tracking than either Quest 2 or Quest Pro. This thing has dedicated hardware via Ultraleap for hand tracking. It's not just in software. And when I actually tried this, that was the thing I was most impressed by. Uh, it was dramatically better than anything I tried before. Best in class for hand tracking. So again, there just there is a lot of good things to there are a lot of good things to say about links it is there's nothing wrong with it it's just it's coming out now where it may be something like just over six months until quest 3 comes out and if quest 3 is cheaper and much more powerful and has the mixed reality and has the hand tracking it just kind of kills a lot of that market appeal of links that had links come out a year ago it really would be one of those things that a lot of wider consumers would want because you do you would have been able to get these features that nothing else offered. But if those features are just around the corner from the bigger players at cheaper cost, that's a lot harder of a sell. Any other comments you want to respond to? Are we ready to talk about XTAL? Artful pointing out that the links are ones prices creeped up to now around nine hundred dollars, so it's even starting to lose that price advantage. So. Yeah, I guess the last thing I want to say about this is this is obviously Lynx R1. I'm very curious, in a post-supply chain crisis world, can they make it to Lynx R2 and can it be competitive with the bigger players? Mm. I the, When I see this product and you talk about the timing, right, like they're, they're lined up in all the right ways over open source and picking sort of the right the right trade-offs as far as like input and display, like it's all in the right place. But like, I'm, I'm worried that the cost of kind of building a fully fledged platform with developer support is a little bit beyond, uh, what a startup can do, uh, these days. Um, I did just, uh, let, let's talk about the Virgineers latest, the demos. So, I, uh, I just uploaded uh, the wireless version of this to the back end if we want to show how big their prototype was at CS because it, it was a large amount of hardware on my hip uh, or, you know, held, uh, strapped over me. Um, but it was uh, wireless. So inside of this on my side was a wireless transmitter and then uh, it piped up to this uh super wide field of view headset it could only stream at a uh like a lower hertz rate and uh the the visuals were not i think the the full it wasn't the full resolution that goes to this headset um still kind of interesting to see uh this kind of massively high-end system that you might use for uh a super high-end train training simulator to at least have that option wirelessly uh, I, I'm getting the sense because these are such small number orders and they sell for so low, so high cost that the developers behind this, the, the creators, work on it and hand tune it over many months. Do you think that's uh, a fair ex, you know, expectation from their hardware? Yeah, this is a headset that is unashamedly not mass market. I don't have the price on me, but I believe it's somewhere around ten thousand dollars, and. Last year CES, this was my favorite headset I tried, and this still remains to this day, in my opinion, you know, from everything I'm aware of, the best VR headset that money can buy. 
you know, here, here's me last year trying it out in a flight simulator experience. And the reason behind that is that it's achieved something that no headset I've tried has ever achieved, which is wide field of view without distortion. And it was truly a magical experience to try that. Obviously, there's the Pimax headsets that had around, you know, 150, 160 degree horizontal field of view. But you had that horrible fishbowl distortion around the edges. Uh, Pimax have claimed to have solved that in their newer headsets. I have not tried those. You can talk to, about that in a little bit. But this Xtal headset is 180 degree horizontal field of view, which is it's just stunning to try. And with no distortion that I could notice, it was something I didn't even think would be technically possible anytime soon. Yes, it's $10,000, but if you are a aircraft manufacturer or an air force or you know one of these organizations for which that is actually cheap this is going to be able to replace or at least train far many more people than your old-fashioned five million dollar simulator setup could and yeah it's just incredible to see this and i can't wait until the day in the long-term future where consumer headsets have this because even if you are very uh bearish on VR, even if you think that in its current iteration, the tech just isn't there to be compelling. I can't imagine someone putting on a headset like this and not saying, you know, holy swear word, like it is <laughs> stunning to have that field of view. Yeah, uh, I, I, I can, I guess I just have to say the the wireless experience, what I saw, I think was way different than what you saw wired uh, because of all the constraints of wireless transmission. And uh, I'm curious to see where they, how far they can take it sort of before CS next year because they are such limited run and like military sort of customers. Uh, that's kind of the timeline where we do see new versions of them coming out is, is CS every year. They kind of... Uh, roll out new things at the end of the year. Um, we are building towards the, the, the sort of finale of the show as we move over the next half hour where we're getting into some of these hands-ons. Um, yeah, I, 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 the, the, the simulator, the fact that you can climb into this actual motion platform and then have the added field of view, like there, that's a niche, that's a niche within a niche within a niche, but it's an extremely important, like task to pull off right uh and so like you've got millions of dollars of equipment flying through the air getting a first person cockpit experience that matches that experience as closely as possible the the sky is almost a limit on how much you can pay for it yeah the, the only thing i would say about this is i don't really get the point of it being wireless i most of the use cases that you can think of for this thing I don't think the wire would particularly matter, especially for all the seated use cases. And, you know, this is quite a heavy and hefty unit. But I guess if you were producing some sort of room scale or standing up simulation experience where field of view mattered a lot, maybe something like this would be appealing. But did they talk much about what the use cases they see for the wireless unit being? Yeah, everything was like for, uh, I have to go back and read what the actual quote was, but it was for those industrial use cases where like you can imagine actually being with a piece of equipment uh, and getting away a few feet further from your PC makes a lot of sense. Um, I think there are a, f a fair number of like show floor or uh, construction uh, or like mechanical, sorry, mechanical, that's the word I'm looking for, mechanical-based uh, situations where you're working with real physical equipment where you might need to be a few more feet away from a PC and it makes more sense. Um, any comments we should respond to before we move on? 
just sampler mentioning that as you mentioned earlier maybe maybe some people didn't hear this wireless unit does drop the resolution normally this thing is 4k per eye but with the wireless unit it lowers to 1440p per eye so as you alluded to there are technical restrictions here i don't think there's any known technology on the market that would be able to pump out uncompressed wireless 4k per eye at the kind of refresh rate this thing's running at at two of the two of those intel chips uh inside your pc i don't know uh how that works (laughs) Well, yeah, that's um, compressed, but yeah, I, I get what you mean. It's maybe maybe with future wireless technologies, that is something that every CES seems to show major improvements on. And I guess there's some of those laser light uh, wireless technologies that are kind of like through the air fiber optic. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see. So I want to talk about the shift all and Panasonic stuff that was in a whole section over in the Panasonic booth. Uh, went over and they've got a bank of these headsets in various configurations. So, uh, how do I pronounce this, Heaney? Is it? Uh, darn it! I'm gonna I'm gonna have to be awkward about this for a few more weeks as I try to drill it into my brain that it's David, not Heaney. David, uh, is it McGain PC VR headset from Panasonic subsidiary? I don't know. I just assumed it was McGann X, but maybe McGann. Who know? If any of your commenters know, please tell us. But I. <laughs> I would read that uh, as McGann. I should go. I should go and get the. I need to go pull them off of Twitter. The the screenshots I put of uh, the the little text they've got uh, next to some of their products at CS. So I tried out a couple of these. One was rather weird. It actually had like a, a secondary set of cameras mounted to the front of this. And it was like for low light computer vision tasks. So you had the cameras directly in front of your eyes and you could look around and see like the bounding boxes as the as the AI was recognizing various objects in your your space. Uh, it was interesting to think of that use case for this of, of kind of like having goggles over your eyes that are able to see for you. Um, and then I did try sort of like a, a little demo where it was an interactive thing with things floating around me and um the weird thing about these glasses is they've got the diopters on them um at least in certain configurations so there's these little sliders on the bottom and you rotate them and it's just like uh it's similar to what's on the latest htc headsets but those diopters if you don't like like i know meta i think has some research or they've they found like only a certain percentage of people ever touch the ipd slider on the device and uh, you kind of have to figure that into your overall design choices of uh, how many people are actually going to tune this thing so if you add an IPD slider as well as a a diopter slider to get the prescriptions just right you're requiring everyone that puts on your device to have to adjust those two sliders as well as the strap on the headset you know you have to finely tune this but when it got in, it was very, very interesting to see the visuals on this device. Like I, it, it's gonna. I'm gonna have to see more traditional content with the headset in order to get a good feel for how the field of view and, and comfort of the device feels. But like, it's strange. It's a different optical experience. All of these, uh, some of these that we'll talk about uh, next. Uh, are like some of the Pimax stuff. It's a different, like your eyes need to focus in different places. And having, you know, coming from uh, almost a decade of experience with a certain fixed focus 
headset design with my eyes getting to focus at a certain level of infinity, like I don't know how ready my eyes are to adapt to some of these new optical systems. It's 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 going to take more time than you get out of a CES demo of 15 or 20 minutes to grasp kind of kind of how it makes your eyes focus differently. Um, so, but it was interesting. I'll say that at least. So I think it's important to note that the, the well, the commenters first are telling us that it's pronounced uh, Megane, which is uh, maybe I'm getting that even wrong, uh, Japanese for glasses. So that makes a lot of sense given that they're going for a glasses form factor. We should point out though that di- the diopter adjustment is not actually present in the mechanics that people can buy. It is only in the business edition, which does not have a price yet, and they haven't even said whether it will be sold to individuals. Mm. Well, and Onakazi saying, no clue what diopter setting I would have to use. So that was the cool thing, at least using them. Um, it was easy to do it on site, right? Like I was able to put the headset on, get it onto my eyes, and then adjust the diopters till it looked as absolutely crisp as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I want to see I want to see that more. I, I'm, we have to get these headsets um, compatible with prescriptions, and uh, I'm I'm that's a big task that has to be done. I think to open up the market to to larger audiences. Um, when I saw this a couple of years ago, and you know, I used the image for my profile photo for a couple of years. It's it's the way I framed it was this is a these are classes in search of a platform, and I still feel that way right now. Um, I would love to see it like Hollow Ride, the the Hollow Ride demo I did at CS. They put me in a car. It was in an HTC, I think, Vive Flow, and then I was riding around Las Vegas with the um, with the world mapped onto my virtual experience in a very strange way, where. My head was actually threed off. I couldn't actually lean this way uh, in Hollow Ride, yet the world was still moving in sixed off around me. So I was still moving positionally through space in a comfortable way, even if these little movements weren't actually mapped correctly. Um, it was an entirely uh, comfortable experience with that Vive Flow headset. This This is the type of glasses that would be really, really cool to see used in that kind of use case. Yeah, it would, but you know, I think w- when we talked about this being in search of a platform, that was under the assumption that this was going to be a mobile or standalone system because of how it was kind of talked about at the time of connecting to a phone. But just to be clear, this as a product that has now been announced for $1,700 is a Steam VR, PC VR headset. So it has built-in inside-out tracking via these cameras on the front. So you could use it for solely games that don't have track controllers, like say a simulator or something like that. But it also has an included in the box uh, lighthouse tracking adapter that you can attach to the top of the headset. And then you can go and purchase uh, st- uh, Valve Index controllers. And as long as you have those base stations, you can then just use this as a PC VR headset just like any other. But obviously, if you include those base stations and controllers, you're getting up to close to $2,300. But as we'll talk about in a second, they actually are coming out with their own controllers too, with a unique idea. Well, all right. So let's. If you, I hope you have the image for that, Heaney, because yes, yeah. they they had this transformable VR controller. There's a video out there that uh, Palmer Lucky, the Rift creator, uh, demonstrating these uh, pretty quickly. 
basically you strap them to your hands. Uh, they, they strap on very much like index controllers. Uh, and you put your hands in there and get them tight. And then you can flip uh, the, the piece out of the way of your hand, go grab something, even type on a keyboard, and then flip it back into place and you've got everything there. Very, very cool idea. The actual prototypes that I saw were didn't look like they were functional. They, they looked like they were just models to prove the concept out. Like I didn't think there was anything... Uh, actually going on underneath the buttons. But it was still a really, really cool idea to imagine this. Um, it also, like, I do wonder about just, like, turning your hand over if this piece flips back into place when you don't mean it to. Uh, it could be pretty aggravating, right? Especially if you've got a hot drink in your hand. Now your, uh, your, your controller is now falling into your hot drink. But obviously, if your hot drink is going to flip over, you, that's going to happen anyway. So, uh it, this is very much the whole area. It felt very R and D. It was the most R and D area of the entire CS show floor that I saw. All the shift all products, all the Panasonic glasses. What I saw was still uh, this idea that they're they're searching for what the use cases are for this particular platform. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not. It's. I think it comes back to what I was saying a second ago. It, you know, this isn't the platform. It isn't. A software solution at all it's all just hardware for steam vr this is this is for pc vr gamers and you know james o'loughlin saying so much expensive hardware i don't think shift all has any ambitions to become a software level provider or to make this into a standalone headset but you know there are people who use uh, vr chat for hours and hours a day and maybe some of those people are willing to spend seven hundred dollars for a headset that feels just like a pair of glasses on their head and maybe they want a controller that they don't have to constantly take on and off to interact with the real world and these are supposed to come out later this year so i don't know you know they must be on, working on a very aggressive timeline if they're going to really get that out if it really was just a non-functional prototype at ces but I, I do love the idea i love the idea and it should be possible to make this mechanically uh, sound such that it won't rotate that you do actually have to do a, a hard accelerating flip motion to get that uh, the flip background and yeah this is something i'd love to try out at some point uh, and i hope that we see some idea of this in future controllers because this the idea of having to strap on and strap off controllers is a big friction point yeah i i love the idea that you can switch modes this quickly right like using a controller in your hand and using hand tracking are, are completely different modes. And when we close out the show, when we get to the last few subjects, when I talk about HTC, I'll talk about this combination of using a controller and hand tracking. And it's it really is kind of the, the very kind of cutting edge of what VR systems can do. And I, I, I don't know, I guess it's a little bit off subject, but like I keep thinking, Heaney, about the idea of object detection and how fundamental it's going to be to open up VR for the next generation of, of people, right? Like, uh, it's such a stupid example, I, I suppose, but I want to be able to, like, touch an object in my house and say, share. And I, and I want that object now to be viewable to you, right? And I would love that to be possible for my pets, right? Like, it would be so amazing to have my pet here as a 3D object roaming around and you able to see it. And if you've got an animal over at your place, we, we could have our 
pets sitting here together, even though we're in other places. But being able to selectively pick any object around you and bring it into your space, like I, I do think over time that's going to we're going to wonder how we lived in VR without it. And the fact is we didn't, right? We didn't spend time in VR because we couldn't do that. And I, this product looks like such an interesting kind of like, uh, when you've got that software feature, then this becomes very, very useful. Well, that is something that is in the realm of research. And it was actually that exact demo was shown at the most recent MetaConnect conference at the end. Michael Abrash was showing Mark Zuckerberg exactly that. Today, that requires... Uh, panning your phone around the object and then doing offline compute on a powerful GPU server for ours. But I imagine in the 2030s, that is going to be something that is part of every consumer device. There are two very different levels of difficulty there. Scanning in a static object, you know, like a a plant or a, a can or something like that, or a baseball bat, and then scanning in and tracking in real time a moving dynamic deformable object like a pet i think that's something that's going to take another five or ten years after that but it's definitely something that will eventually be a big part of vr i completely agree and it's not only about sharing it it's about being able to use that as your controller because obviously any given controller is only useful for a limited set of applications and when you come to training in vr for enterprise companies they're always using these custom controllers with you know a vive tracker stuck on top of it or one of htc's new uh, inside out trackers for the vive focus 3 and if you could get rid of that idea if you could just pick up any object in your house and use it for a controller so you're playing a golf game and you go and pick up your real a golf club or you're paying you're playing table tennis and you literally just pick up a table tennis paddle that completely transforms what's possible in vr but it is something that will take some significant advances in machine learning in the next few years yeah and i saw skiva saying it did seem to sort of stay in place once you flipped it in position um and i and i like skiva's enthusiasm saying i want these controllers yeah the thing that why why focus so much on that software element, right? Like this looks like such a cool solution if you are spending those extended times in VR, right? Like even if you take the headset off, you could still leave the straps on for a minute to go do something outside of VR and then you come back and put the helmet back on or the glasses back on, depending on how slim your device is. Um, And then going, you know, this idea of this person talking about using a mech, Right. Like it's such a cool idea to imagine being in sort of a social experience like we're having here and then having this like mechanical flip into mech mode uh, and then you're ready to go in a completely different experience is a really compelling idea. Ready to talk about your impressions of Pimax Portal? Oh, man. Are we there? Are we going to get there? Uh, Wow. Yeah. Um, We've got two subjects left. In our rundown, I will get into more of CES next week. It was a heck of a thing to travel and get there, uh, cover everything, or at least see everything I possibly could, and then get back out. And I'm still processing a bunch of those demos. But I did get out my impressions of Pimax, and I think it's really important that we talk about where they are. So... Uh, It was one of the first demos I kind of got to at CES. I knew they would be showing off their Pimax Portal View kit Um, at CES. uh, I I suppose I should just add the context that uh, we've got emails going back and forth with Pimax a little bit over the months and years. 
where we as journalists uh, trying to help uh, shed light on what this company is doing are constantly trying to reach out to them and get uh, clear communications about what they're doing and where they actually are. And right now, as we speak, they're in the final days of their Kickstarter project. So if you're listening to this on podcast form, it might be after they finish the Kickstarter project uh, for this product. Product They were closing in at about 400000 from a $200,000 goal uh, over the last couple of days. And they're pitching something that is more or less uh, very, very, very similar to the Labo VR product where you take a switch, you take off the Joy-Cons, you put the switch into a cardboard holder, and then you hold the cardboard holder up to your face. That's what Labo VR was. And then Daydream View, you kind of did the same thing with a phone. You take the phone, uh, you put it inside this view, this, this soft fabric holder, and then you put the soft fabric holder over your, you know, the, the headset over your eyes, and you've got a VR experience. These are years-old ideas. By now, and Pimax is resuscitating that idea and shipping it as a new product. So, for three hundred dollars, I think on Kickstarter they are promising to ship the Switch kind of unit, the handheld controllers and device, and then for about four fifty, they're promising to ship the uh, the whole kit that we're seeing here in this trailer, where you've got controllers, you've got a headset. And uh, you're able to do six stuff in theory, six stuff VR. Um, I let's throw up the image here of the controllers. Where are they? Um, yeah, okay. So that video trailer we just showed shows uh, it's either that trailer or the video that's actually in their Kickstarter video shows the sleeve with a controller that goes into the sleeve. And then this controller uh, is the unit that you hold in your hand together and it, it's tracked by the headset. So in my demo, uh, you know, this is what they show in their promotional materials. This is the hardware that was actually tested in VR. So this, I put this on my head and these controllers I held in my hand. But you will notice looking at these controllers, they don't have the joy-con-like attachments inside of them these are i i I walk around the pimax booth there's uh two sets of people there's like sort of the united states or english-speaking um media professionals you know that are working for pimax to explain things and then there's the actual employee like the core employees of the company the, the the organization itself pimax um, and I had to run around to ask my questions to, 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 to find out what's going on. So I go to the U.S. staff and or the, the, the English speaking staff and ask about the controllers. I was told that these are the crystal controllers, the Pimax crystal controllers, not the ones for this headset. So I could not I could not actually test out at CES the controllers that they're showing in their Kickstarter video. And uh in addition, tracking wasn't great. Um, it did seem to track, you know, when when this was on, the controllers tracked decently, but the head uh, the head tracking kept 
kept losing my head, kept showing me in the long, wrong location. At one point, I was flying off over the Grand Canyon when I meant to stand uh, right in place. Um, yeah, that's. let's see what the comments are, and then I'll talk a little bit more about my, my broader thoughts on this. Yeah, and I think the important context here is that you're, Pimax is claiming that they're going to ship this with those sliding controllers later this month. So if they can't even demonstrate that yet, I don't understand why do they keep, I don't want to use the word lying, but why do they keep saying that they're going to ship things on a time frame that is clearly not realistic when all they're going to do is just destroy the next wave of goodwill that they've gotten from people? Maybe they do pull a miracle off and for some reason, despite not showing this last week, they are going to somehow ship those controllers by the end of the month. But yeah, that that tracking being per is really worrying because inside out tracking is still hard and it's something that you really would expect in a product for this price to be not just good but excellent so if it's if it's so bad that it's showing visible drift that is deeply worrying yeah um i'm seeing uh someone from uh open brush talking about their experience so what i tried two pieces of software in here uh, I, I believe one was Open Brush, and the other one I, I didn't catch the name off of it. Uh, someone uh, in my comments uh, said what it was. You know, like it, I'll just call it a uh, you know a painting program. It's a pretty general. Like at this point, Tilt Brush itself has been open sourced, and that core software is making its way into a lot of different pieces of software. So I might as well just call it the you know the core tilt brush experience is what I saw or tested briefly painting just with uh, in, in the open air. But like as I'm moving around, it's it's not it's it's staying in place as I move trying to lean around this artwork I just put in place. And then I leaned all the way around and it shifted uh, completely in place another time. Um, yeah, I, I don't mean this is there is all right so. A lot of the other stuff we're talking about in our show here, Heaney, like the Quest and the Quest software, the HTC Vive and the HTC Vive software, like you can get to good tracking with a certain amount of effort. But to get to great tracking, it's it's extraordinarily costly and expensive, I think, to get that engineering power. And these headsets, what we talked about just in that previous segment, is these headsets need or should get even better tracking for even more things in the coming years to access an even larger market. And what I saw at, at CES and what has kind of been building over years is if you don't get that basic tracking right from the start, everything that follows is kind of like... Uh, doesn't matter, right? Like if you don't get that core fundamental right uh, and great, it's it's pretty frustrating to say anything else uh, about that particular product. Yeah, these are hardware companies trying to play what is increasingly a software game. And it is why it's such a shame that Google's Daydream project died out. Because the problem is that we're still in this situation 
where every hardware maker that wants to release a standalone device, a mobile device, has to build up their own platform. There are now three entirely separate standalone VR platforms when Vive XR Elite launches. You've got MetaQuest, you've got Pico, and then you have Vive XR. So this, with Pimax, is an entirely fourth platform. And when I say platform, I'm talking about the tracking software, the system software, the store, all of these elements coming together. If there was an alternative, if, for example, Pico licensed out their platform to any headset maker that wanted it, then Pimax could just run the Pico software and tracking and tracking technology and store. But the problem is then Pimax isn't going to get that funding from the store, so they have to add a higher hardware margin. Or, you know, HTC could provide it. Theoretically, Meta could provide it. That did seem when Google had Daydream like that was going to be the future, but that is the problem now. You cannot just look at the spec sheet of a headset you want to buy if it's a mobile headset. You have to look at the entire software stack and platform that's going along with it. And it is a big barrier to competitors being able to emerge. It's something that requires not only money and you know resources, as you said, but requires time. Facebook has been working on inside-out tracking since 2014, 2015. It has been, you know, working directly on mobile inside-out tracking since at least 2016, 2017. This is something that, you know, when the Quest One launched, there were a lot of tracking issues, and in the months that it, in the months following, those were improved and improved and improved. Then Quest Two got better again, and then Quest Pro is at the point where the, the inside-out tracking is essentially flawless. Even Pico Four which has all of that resources from ByteDance and all of that cooperation with Qualcomm, still doesn't have that rock-solid tracking quality that Quest has. I wonder if there's just there's there's a room for a kind of software company here that specifically focuses on this. We know that Occipital was working on this, but someone needs to basically build a tracking system that is as good as Meta's and then license it out to these companies so that you don't have to worry, has Pimax somehow built a tracking system? I wish I knew uh, better about... Blender and its its sort of uh, structure, but isn't that kind of like a project that is able to do a lot because it's it's got such a like a broadly supported base of open source stuff underneath the surface? Like, it, I know there's open libraries for for computer vision, but something should grow out of that to enable some of the stuff across multiple headsets soon. I would hope. Yeah, there are. The, the problem is that a lot of those open source projects are focused on robotics where you don't need any of the quality of VR. You know, VR inside out tracking is extraordinarily hard. I think people forget that it's not just about building, even if you build an excellent inside out tracking system, it's still not likely good enough for VR because not only does the latency have to be essentially nothing, but the, the precision and accuracy has to be sub millimeter. It is an extraordinarily hard problem to the point where, you know, we reported back in 2015 that many at Meta, many at Facebook back then didn't actually believe it was possible. At, on the release of the original Oculus Quest, uh, the Meta executives reported, or, you know, said in some interviews that they thought that it originally wouldn't actually be possible to pull this off. It's something that's only emerged in the, in the last few years. And yes, you'll get, you're going to get providers like Qualcomm license out their tech there, but it's it's one of those things where until a open source community has been built up and working on this for years, it's just not there yet. 
So just to recap this subject before we move on, and I noticed, uh, I think it was Stephanie uh, from Tilt 5 is in our comments. I want to get into Tilt 5 next week. I was very impressed with my demo from Tilt 5. I finally got to see the latest hardware. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth, the, the head of Tilt 5, met with me um, after one of my days going through everything. Um, and then she, you know, she pulled a laptop out of her bag. She connected two headsets to the laptop, rolled out a, uh, a mat in front of us where era content. And it was amazing to have that demo. But I want to get into it more next week when I can really give it the, the air to, to kind of dive into that subject. Um, I just want to throw up this image of from their Kickstarter video that shows specifically shows the controllers. You know, I made this tweet uh, sort of. You know, I, I wasn't going to click the report button on the Kickstarter project because I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a policeman of the internet. I'm a journalist reporting on what's there. But this isn't, uh, this isn't what I saw. Right, this isn't what I saw operationally of their prototype at CES, and that just like, I don't know. I don't doubt that they're working on it. It, it makes sense that they they would work on it, but like, uh. It's. It, I saw someone in our comments talking about uh, Chinese New Year coming up, and uh, you've brought up in the past, Heaney, that the the factory shut down. Um, I just I hate seeing people getting frustrated that their things don't come when they expect them to, or when they come, they're not high quality. Uh, we cannot recommend uh, anyone back P Pimax, and uh, I'll I'll just throw it out there again. I mentioned it before, but. They contacted us in the weeks leading up to their Kickstarter asking if they could use our logo in their Kickstarter project, and I said no. Um, you know, I, we'll, yeah. We will test anything they send us, and we will give it a fair shake, but uh, it needs to, be, <laughs> needs to be finished when we test it. Yeah, I mean, CES is every January. If you're saying you're going to release a product in January, you need to show the product at CES if you're going to CES. You can't show a different product and say, and say you're somehow going to put it together in the next few weeks. That's just not going to fly. And yeah, I guess you're saying the same thing that a lot of our commenters are saying. It is just astonishing that Pimax will not learn to just stop over-promising. Focus on making one great thing be realistic about your promises on your timeline and your specs and then deliver. Stop the hype, stop the marketing, and stop saying that it's going to ship next month when you when you haven't actually built the product yet. Yep. All right, let's move on to the last thing that I can really talk about right now. I, yeah, like I said, I want to get into Tilt 5 real deep next week and because uh, I think it's such a fascinating story, uh, really kind of, yeah, like I, I tried Magic Leap at CS. We'll talk about Magic Leap too. But when I think about the spirit that the Oculus Rift had back when it was on Kickstarter uh, and the years before it got acquired by um, by Facebook, I think of Tilt 5 matching that spirit uh, for AR. And I, I, I want to see... Uh, where they go with their next step. So we'll get into that next week. But I did get to visit HTC's area of the Wynn Hotel. They've been at the Wynn for years now, um, doing their annual announcements for CES. And uh, I've, you know, it's it's like a, there's a very specific area of 
Las Vegas that I've become very familiar with because it's always like HEC is there first. Uh, they do their presentation. They announce their work, and then uh, nobody buys it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious wow. because that that wasn't that wasn't true in 2016 with the initial one, right? And uh, you know, you go back to the first five. Um, it was a consumer event. These were consumer games. They were extraordinarily cool. It was all the work that. Uh, Chet had done at Valve to bring developers, game developers to the table, get them building with a room scale VR headset and uh, that was that was a, a long time ago when Vive was that way and each subsequent year HEC has moved further and further away from that original consumer vision until now and this, this, this it was weird to come back full circle I love that you've forgotten Cosmos, which says a lot about how well Cosmos did, because HTC did try <laughs> the consumer market again with Cosmos, but obviously it failed. Oh, you're going to talk about Cosmos? Did you like Cosmos, well, Heaney? What did you think of Cosmos? I don't think anyone did, but it, it was their their next consumer play. You know, arguably they could have called that Vive Two and the or Vive S. It was HTC's Rift S essentially. If anyone doesn't know what it was, that, it was their PC VR headset with inside out tracking, and almost no one bought it. Is that the one that had two triggers? Yes, and just, yeah, and let's just design. throw a second trigger in there and completely change around the input scheme. Yeah, because why not? I, I don't understand that. But yeah, I mean, I loved the flip-up design, to be fair. That was a great idea. The problem was, as we were just discussing, they didn't get the inside-out tracking right. They they couldn't launch inside-out tracking that matched the Rift S or Windows Mixed Reality or Quest, and that's what caused it to feel. But hopefully this time with XR Elite, they have something that can. And, you know, this is a Quest Pro competitor it's marketing here and you'll talk about your experience in a second is yeah. that unlike the quest pro the mixed rally doesn't suck and if that's true <laughs> and it's 400 dollars cheaper it, i think it has a place in the market so yeah. can you tell the viewers did the mixed rally not suck yeah uh well all right so uh, i did four or five demos or I, I lost track of all the software but the first one i went into was maestro maestro the uh conducting experience that's on app lab and so uh, it was brought, you know, it's on the XR Elite. Uh, HTC was saying that if it works on Vive Focus 3, it should just work on this headset, which is a pretty big deal for transferring people over to the software. All right, so Maestro on this headset, you've got a controller in one hand. I'm, I'm given a controller in one hand, and I've just got open-air hand tracking in the other and this experience, I've got sort of an orchestra right in front of me, and I'm supposed to point to parts of the orchestra at the right time that the software is telling me, and I'm supposed to make the right movements at the right time with uh, the chopstick in my hand. Uh, it's a controller, but it, it, I see a chopstick in VR. So at the outset of this demo, I'm, I'm fully immersed in this, um, in this orchestra experience, ready to experience, and the developer says... Uh, can you uh, look over at me? And I turn to my right, and he's standing right there in mixed reality. Now I went, I, I, I can't describe how awesome. Like I'm going to try my best to describe how awesome of an experience that moment was, and how I, I kind of had mentally prepared myself 
for that moment back when I tried the Quest Pro and it never came, right? All the Quest Pro experiences were by default mixed reality uh, back when they debuted the Quest Pro. And I was super let down by all of the visuals I saw. Like I could see a person there, but I don't really want to look at them because they're that low fo- they're that they're that low resolution. It's like actually uh, distracting to look at them. I just want to look at the, the virtual content. But here I was looking at really, really great virtual content. And then I turned to my right and boom, I'm actually looking at really great um, AR or pass-through content. And I, I really wanted to connect eye-to-eye with the developer. There was that much added detail. Now, the thing about it is, I, I don't know necessarily if it was depth crack or, or 3D. The scale seemed right. The resolution seemed amazing. Um, but all I can say of that experience was that it was way better than a Quest Pro. Every moment in Quest Pro's mixed reality was less enjoyable than this shocking moment of uh, being in completely virtual content, turning to my right and boom, oh wow, you're actually here. Like it, it, it crossed this line of being so good that like it actually seems feasible to, to do uh, that sort of handing off of your VR headset to a friend, right? Like for, for years, it's been miserable to hand off, like for him to explain how to use his app by just turning to him and then turning back to the app was magical. Absolutely fantastic demo. Uh, really, 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 really cool uh, to, to see that effect. Then, <laughs> then I started using the software, right? So I'm pointing to things with one hand, with my just open-air hand tracking, and I'm using a tracked controller with the other. This is something that a Quest cannot do just yet. And after a few minutes, like it's not recognizing my hand as regularly as I need it to. So like it would lose my hand, then have to reacquire the hand for two seconds, and then I could do my pointing. And I'd be midpoint, and it might lose the tracking on the hand for this thing. Now, it wouldn't lose the controller, and I could keep keep doing the orchestral stuff with this hand, but this hand was just not quite enough. Now, I hate talking about that because... That feels like something they could get a lot better. I think, I think Vive probably has the the resources to improve exactly that functionality I talked about. Does Pimax have the resources to improve that sort of functionality on any reasonable time frame? I think probably not. Um, so that's it's really hard to talk oh, about these things. Just asking. Can you just clarify when you were talking about the hand drop and you're talking about the Vive XR Elite? Yes, not the Quest Pro. Uh, yeah, so I'm on this. Sorry, the whole Maestro demo was done on Vive XR Elite. I'm saying the mixed reality on Vive XR Elite is far superior to anything I saw out of a Quest Pro. Uh, but I didn't use it for long enough to like say this is a half hour and it's really comfortable, right? I need that length of time. But the I was blown away by how great it was to look to my right and see a person in VR and comparing that to the almost identical press event that Meta held a couple months ago to show off the Quest Pro. It was night and day how good that mixed reality was. Now I'm talking about this hand tracking versus uh, controller tracking, and that was also Vive XR Elite, not something you can do quite yet on a Quest Pro, right? He, you can't mix and match hand yeah, tracking with controller? Yeah, that's something that's... 
coming in a future SDK but is not available. So a few questions I have here for you. Uh, firstly, uh, how was the comfort of this? And I actually forgot to ask, how was the comfort of that Pimax headset? Because you have that unit in the front. What Did it feel front heavy? And then obviously, how did this feel on your head? Uh, the, it felt forgettable um, in a way that other headsets aren't. Right, like I, I that the thing you start noticing more than anything else is the field of view. You start forgetting that that something is even there um, in in a in a really delightful way with Pimax. It didn't feel overly front heavy, but I also didn't want to be wearing it because the tracking was so bad. Um, so like I, this this. This one I want to try testing both without the battery pack and with the battery pack. So another demo I did, the next demo, one of the demos I went over to, I tried uh, Yuki in mixed reality, um, which if you've tried, um, if you've tried the old lab demo from Valve, they had one of the rooms there for uh, the lab. You had this little spaceship you could operate around the room and dodge waves of enemy attacks and, and shoot back at them. Yuki was very, very similar, and I was moving around with Yuki, this little character in my hand, uh, shooting at all these waves of things coming uh, at me. It was phenomenal. I spent a good, you know, the largest amount of time of all the Vive XR Elite demos doing this mixed reality demo of shooting all these things, and I enjoyed it. The, the closest thing that I've enjoyed in mixed reality on Quest Pro was Figment XR, um, I really, really enjoyed all of that stuff. But Yuki was really, 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 really cool. But something happened in the middle of my demo. The battery died. The battery completely died. That The headset just went black. I had no idea what was going on. I'm like, oh, I guess it died. I pulled the headset off. The, the, the developers go and get another battery pack, pull it off the back of this, stick the new battery pack, and I go back into the Yuki demo where I was fighting the waves of enemies. And, you know, I don't think they did it on purpose, but it was a phenomenal demonstration of exactly what sets this device apart and what what could, like, be a really, really cool use case. Um, being able to, to sort of have it go into standby mode until you get a new battery was really, really cool to see. Um, yeah, that is the yeah. most interesting aspect of this device, isn't it? The fact that if anyone's not familiar, that rear battery that on Pico 4 and on Quest Pro is hardwired and you can't attach can just be detached on this. So you can use any USB port as the power source. You could use a battery pack of your own. You could use an airplane's USB port, a train's, a hotel's, and you then no longer have that back padding. So you could lie all the way back on a couch and watch virtual content, which kind of... Uh, integrates very well with another feature of this device, which is that you can stream certain Android phone screen into VR on a cinema screen. So you could use Disney Plus, you could use a mobile game. Uh, there are a lot of interesting things about this device, but I guess the, the biggest skepticism we have here is obviously that this doesn't have anywhere near the app library that Quest has, and it doesn't even have anywhere near the library that Pico has. As we've just been saying, there are now three mobile VR platforms, and in terms of content, you have quest is way 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 ahead with like over a thousand apps and then now you have pico trying to catch up and now you have a third competitor coming into the race and that's what htc is going to really really struggle with is getting developers to actually invest the time to port over to an 1100 headset 
So I'll add uh, one of my demos was given to me by Jamie Feltham, our former colleague uh, who has been in the studio many times recording over the years. Uh, very, very strange. Now, that's why I started off with my sort of jokey uh, uh, summary of HEC moving away from consumer VR over the years. I'm seeing in our comments talking about the Vive Focus 3 having some of these features. And then you pointed out the Cosmos being, you know, officially HTC never exited the consumer market, right? Like they, they've been doing this for years, but they've been unable to to bring back the audience that they had well, in 2016. They or haven't entered the, consum- the, the consumer standalone market. This is their first consumer standalone headset. Oh, yeah, that's right. God, I forgot Cosmos was a PC, right? Yeah, okay, no, sorry. It was, it was you a broke PC up headset. a little bit. You, know, you broke up a little bit when we were talking about it. I just, yeah, they've tried so many things over the years. It was interesting to see it all coming together. And the fact that Jamie, so Jamie went over there and I think he was working on getting some of that content onto this system. So there was hubris on there. It had some really nice environmental effects. Unplugged. I tried it with controllers. I tried it first with hand tracking, but I ended up going to controllers. Um, unplugged is a very hard experience. Like you're you're testing the very limits of both like of the hand tracking as well as just interacting with the game. Um, I I loved Unplugged. That was really cool. But again, I tried it with with uh, with controller tracking. Um, the reason I brought up Jamie uh, was we've covered, he and I covered CES together, uh, him usually away in England, me uh, going to the event. We, we've only met twice. So, so that was a coworker I worked with for like half a decade. And we only ever met at CES one year. And then again at CES, and now he's working for one of the companies giving me demos. So it was weird to have someone like uh, who's always going through the demos with me actually giving me a demo and to stack this year of vive and hcc against all the previous years it's 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 a it, it it's a changing of the ages right like this is a different era for htc than we had in the 2010s and it's interesting and i want it to succeed because we need competitive competing standalone headsets but the problem with every other iteration before this was even when it had superior like specs, even though it had room scale out of the box back with the original Vive, the hundreds of dollars difference made all the difference for the winning consumer headset. And here, yes, this is doing better than a Quest Pro at a lesser cost, doing a lot of great things but is it enough of the the quest library to justify an extra eight hundred dollars or whatever it is seven hundred dollars the other question i'd ask you and this is something that i saw some commenters asking is about those lenses so obviously the quest pro i think we'd all agree has best in class lenses those pancake lenses on quest pro are just unmatched you got a great spe- a sweet spot you've got excellent clarity it's got wider field of view than a quest 2 uh, these lenses look to be the same as the vive flow from 2021 and i reviewed the vive flow and you know it was the first headset to launch in the west with pancake lenses but they are not the same 
quality of pancake lenses that are in Pico 4 and Quest Pro. I would call the Pico 4 and Quest Pros Gen 2. And so what I'm wondering is, what was what were these lenses like? What was the field of view? Did it feel as wide as a Quest Pro uh, or an Index? Uh, and what about the clarity? Did these feel like it was up to the same par or did these feel like they compromised to get this form yeah. factor? Um, it felt crisp. The it felt clear compared to Quest Pro. I may have to give an edge. You know, I may still give the edge to Quest Pro on clarity uh, of the the lenses and overall just enjoyment of the lenses. Um, but this is a question I think you're going to have to come back to once we get longer amounts of time with with the headset. You know, it's 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 a hard question to go into five random pieces of software, some of which I've tried before, some of which I haven't. Um, hey Siri, turn that off. You know, some of which I've. There are no timers on HomePod. That's not true, Siri. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, it's hard to compare apples to apples, right? In that side of demo, I did you know fill in your bingo card on that one. I can't. I enjoyed the lenses. They were really crisp. The field of view, like the the one that bugs me is is measuring field of view in a demo like that. Like I'd I'd have to say it felt smaller, but that's that's like picking, you know, I'm not gonna throw a number at that. Like I, I can't I always thought PlayStation VR had the widest field of view. And I know like if you get the fitting just right, it can feel that way. But like Everything has always felt like a step back from that since then. I, I don't know. I, I'm 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 having a hard time talking about field of view here. It felt wide, decently wide, but I still would have to say, like overall, the in VR visuals were probably superior on Quest, even though the mixed reality was probably better out of uh, 5XR Elite, but then you start asking about field of view relative to those things, and that's a demo that you have to really take, you, you take your Quest off, put the XR on, and get a feel for whether you're actually seeing the same height and and uh, width out of both of those demos. I, It's it's all the same at the end of the day to me on, on some of these. Um, yeah. I'm very much so looking forward to review this. You know, obviously we hope to have a review for this uh, at launch or soon after launch. We're going to be in contact with HTC soon about figuring out the timeline for that. So, you know, that'll be something I'll be digging into. It, it, yeah, if, you, if you're at CES and you've tried, you know, 10 different headsets in a day, it's hard to kind of note and tell those differences, especially in those incredibly short demos. But yeah, I'll be fascinated to see whether these lenses are just the same flow lenses like they look to be or if they are a new generation, because I feel like that could be the weakness in this headset in that those don't seem to be the same, you know, huge pancake lenses that you see in Pico 4 and Quest Pro. Yeah, I there's still a lot more. This is the one I was writing up right before I came in, came in here, and I'm going to have to figure out how to express some of these things. But I, I just, the takeaways from what I could get out of those limited demo times was there. this is the beginning of a new ecosystem for for HTC. This is the product that I wanted the flow to be and now it's actually shipping and I, you know I think there's going to be an audience for it and all that content that is coming to this platform I think we're just beginning to hear that story of of what you know Jamie and others are going to bring to this system is going to 
is going to really show us whether it's a a viable alternative to Pico and the others. I what I can say though is the battery removal and the mixed reality both made it interesting enough to be like a viable product we should think about. You you, you could actually put it on your interest list. I'm not going to put Pimax on that same list. Um, I did try the Crystal uh, briefly. I went over and tried it. I tried uh, HTC, uh, or I tried um, Alex in the Crystal, and uh, it was doing that thing where it was rendering the world at the widest area of the field of view, like a second behind everything else that it was rendering. So, like, I kept seeing pop in at the edges of my view of the of the thing, and again, that's a, that's that's a distraction that becomes very hard to assess the overall experience when everywhere you turn it's rendering the last edges of your field of view after you look at it um you know those are things i worked we went through 10 different products and i'm trying to give the sense that uh the panasonic product you know was interesting but it's got to come together as a platform the pimax product I wouldn't put my money into that, but it's still interesting. Um, I want to see what they can do with it. I would love to see what a a company that has a lot of software prowess can do with something like uh, the Pimax Portal View uh, system. And then over with HTC, this felt like the rebirth of HTC. This felt like returning to where they were in 2016. And I, I really, I want Heaney to get extended amounts of time with all of these features because things like mixing controller input with hand tracking input is a really, really cool idea. They had other, they had the Kayak VR on PC with the Kayak being tracked via their bands. Uh, the Kayak lost tracking in my demo multiple times. It, HTC feels like a company where they can, they've got the resources to improve that software. And I think we're going to see probably a lot of lot of effort there done in the next six months. Um, I'm I'm very very interested to see what HTC does in its very next steps, and that is something that he needs to assess at length for us to get a better opinion out there. This will be a continuation next week when we get into CS, where I've got Tilt Five, Hollow Ride. I really want to break down what I saw with Hollow Ride. I tried multiple haptic systems. Contact CI had a really interesting haptic system where the glove seemed to wiggle itself onto my fingers. It felt a little bit like the shoe. When you see the shoes in Back to the Future Part 2 and Marty McFly's shoes auto size themselves, it felt a little bit like that on my hand from Contact CI. And then Kyle and I did a haptics demo at HAPTX where we actually did multiplayer haptics, each of us with gloves on. That was really interesting. And there are a bunch more demos that I'm still thinking about. We will break those down as I, I've just really begun to break down everything. Oh, Somnium. I'm seeing Somnium right at the end. That demo was at the Virgineers booth, but it was mounted into a wall. Like it was, they were showing the optics physically in place. You couldn't actually, you know, hold an HMD up to your head or move around in it. They had like a, like a mounted demo. So that's a, we'll have to see how far they're able to take that idea of an open source design. I think we'll wrap it up here. Heaney will probably pop in here right as I'm closing out. But I want to say thank you to everyone. I want to say thank you to Veil VR for sponsoring us this week. 
Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Please like, comment, subscribe. Consider becoming a member. We've got very, very big plans in 2023, and we are just beginning to cover all of the big announcements that are coming out. We've got every major platform under the sun coming out in various ways. Heaney, you have a chance to say goodbye before I have to shut down the stream. Thank you for rejoining. Thank you, everyone. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off and I'll let Heaney take it from here. Yeah, no, I was just going to reply to that. Mike is saying, yeah, Quest Pro does have foveated rendering. Pico 4 Pro, I feel like I've said this on maybe 10 shows now, but Pico 4 Pro is not a consumer product. It is not launching outside China to consumers. It is launching in the West as Pico 4 Enterprise. So unfortunately, it doesn't really matter what it can do because you can't buy it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Vive XR Elite slots in between those Pico 4, or Pico 4 level products and Quest Pro. And, you know, I wonder if... My last kind of thought here is I wonder if Quest, I wonder if HTC and Pico could unite on content somehow because it seems they're facing the same struggle in how do they get enough content to compete with the Quest platform. Um, It doesn't seem like there's room in the market for three platforms, then four if you include Pimax, and then five when it comes along to Apple. Consumers rarely want to have more than two or three platforms in a given tech sector. Yeah, I noticed one of our stories that we had going up today was talking about Team Beef and their VR ports. And I know some of those ports are over on SideQuest, right? I know SideQuest officially support Android-based competing platforms, but you know, if you beefed up what a platform like SideQuest offered and really formally like made that experience of using SideQuest easier on like a Pico and Vive XR Elite, you could really have a differentiating like thing there. If it's easier to use SideQuest and sideload a whole bunch of stuff than it is over on Quest, that would be a really, really interesting thing to kind of push people toward. Um, yeah, I'd love to see not just Pico and Vive, but Pico, Vive, and SideQuest. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for those companies to team up and offer something really great for people. Yeah, and it just comes back also that idea that Daydream could have been this layer that we're looking for, this kind of Google Play Store for VR. You could have literally had a Google Play Store for VR and every non-meta Android headset, you could buy content and it would all run together. But, you know, HTC pulled out of Daydream, which people never really talk about being a big part of Daydream's demise. HTC's focus was actually supposed to be a Daydream headset, but they pulled out. They wanted their own platform. It just seems weird that HTC is now trying to make hardware profit and be the software provider, but... I understand why all these companies gun for that, but it's not going to last. In In the long term, they're going to need to be fewer software platforms, and some of these hardware makers are going to just have to start adopting one of their competitors' platforms eventually. Why not now? Yeah. A right, great note to end off on. Yeah, we will get to it next week. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you in the future.